coming up. Warner Brothers 2021 film slate. A tangent into Christopher Nolan and the Game Awards. Mank. The triumphant return of Sam's Lexicorner. A question about Toto, the band, not the dog. And our top 10 things of the year. Um, should we talk about the Warner Brothers news? Yes. Yes. There is Warner Brothers news. There is Warner Brothers news. That um, news being? That they are debuting their entire 2021 film slate on HBO Max and theatre simultaneously, I think. I was going to say, I assume that you've done the research on this, because I've seen mm. various accounts. I've seen people saying that it's only going to be on HBO Max. No. And I've seen people saying it's going to be a simultaneous release. Yes. It's going to be simultaneous release. Yes, I haven't done the deep dive research, but yeah, I think in their statement it was side-by-side releases. Okay. But I, I imagine, well, just by default now, because of how many cinemas will have closed, Yeah, um, a limited opening, I would yeah. have thought. Well, that's the thing. A lot of people have also been framing this as, oh, this is Warner Brothers' attempt to abandon ship when yeah. it comes to the cinemas. Mm-hmm. But if it's a simultaneous release, then all that's really doing, um, I suppose in their eyes at the very least, is it's giving people choice. It's giving like, people choice. You can you can watch it at home or you can watch it in yeah. the cinema. I mean, there are studios and films that have done this before on like a one-by-one sort of basis. Yeah. Um, but... I mean, this was the future anyway. Oh, yeah. We were going this way. Yeah, cinemas were going to sort of shrivel on the vine a bit. But as long as there's still the choice to go to the cinema, that's all I want is the choice. Um, Yes, I'm sure within our lifetime, there'll be no more cinemas full stop. Yeah. Uh, Or it'll be like a a novelty. Yes. Like I'm trying to think of, um, I'm trying to think of like a comparable experience. Well, like an escape room. Like they, they will only be... Um, even though that is like a chain isn't it yeah but they all in a weird way they will only be independent cinemas yeah I suppose kind of like video game arcades where there yeah. are no sincere video game arcades anymore most right. of them are just kind of um, oh we're, it's, a, it's a preservation of a thing that once was okay you'll have like um, like a cinema like every few cities yes and it'll be like a novelty it's like oh we could go to the cinema yeah, like, like, a, like our grandparents used to you know yeah yeah like a theme bar like yeah. a prohibition speakeasy or like um, yeah like that like yeah. uh, um, St. Fagans I guess St. Fagans where it's sort of well, like this, sort of. yeah it's kind of like this um, this sort of uh, what is St. Fagans like a, it's a town isn't it yeah but it, it yeah made up to in the fashion of I don't even know when yeah it is <laughs> It's sort of like mud huts and the times yeah. where they were like, you know, they would make their own bread, like grinding yes. stones together. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, they wore like frilly yeah. clothes. This isn't helping at all. No, identify no, what St. Fagans is. Yeah, it's be- basically like ye olden times. It's a ye olden time town where yes. they've kind of, I don't know how many of those buildings are preserved, but they've probably reconstructed those buildings in a fashion similar to how they used to be. Yeah, so that you could, on that. Yeah, so you can go there and be like, this is how people used to live and operate. The only thing I remember about St. Fagans is the fruit being plastic. I don't even remember that. They were fruit bowls. I think the there's a plastic. train there, right? Like a locomotive? It's not Probably. A, not a functioning one. No. But I think there's I a locomotive. No but yeah, it'll be like that. What's, there's that uh, cocktail bar in Cardiff. I don't know if you've been there. 
um, where it's essentially a speakeasy. Oh, Dead Canary. Dead Canary. You've told me about it. Yes. I do want to go there, but yeah. apparently it's really expensive. It's extortionate. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's extortionate. <laughs> Maybe I'll, like leave it a while before, yeah, yeah. before I go there then. Uh, yeah, it'll be like that. Yeah. It'll be a retro experience. Yeah, like a speakeasy. Yes. Yeah, that's probably the best. Ignore St. Fagans. That's <laughs> probably the best parallel to draw. Yeah. Cinemas will become speakeasies where yeah. they're sort of like replicated experiences rather than, you know, still being a thing. That'll be a strange inversion, though, the fact that... Um, chain cinemas like Cineworld mm. destroyed independent cinemas because of digital projection and, and you know, uh, that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, now I mean, maybe we'll get to a point where the only cinemas will be independently operated yeah. buildings yeah. instead of these franchises. Um, yeah, so some of the films that are going to be included are The Matrix 4. Yeah, you started with a big one. Yeah, I feel like most of these, because Warner Brothers obviously have the DC movies. Mm-hmm. So there are some instances like with... Um, Obviously, the slider cut has been slated to go on um, HBO Max for ages, mm-hmm. so that's not a huge surprise. But most of like DC's big releases, like Aquaman two, and yeah, they're all going on to streaming services. Which, in the wake of Disney Plus, isn't a big surprise anymore. No, it's like okay, yeah, I could watch Aqu- Aquaman at home, fine. Yeah, I sort of get that. But yeah, Matrix four, yeah, and there's the other big one was. Dune, Dune as well, wasn't it? Yes. Like, Dune doesn't feel like a home experience at all. No, and The Suicide Squad. And The Suicide Squad, yeah. Yeah, yeah they're, they're the three kind of... I mean, I don't know what The Matrix 4 is going to be. No. But I imagine it's going to be a big screen film. You'd think if any film was going to yeah. bring people back to the cinemas, it was going to be another Matrix. Yes, and good or bad. And I've honestly zero... I have a neutral anticipation for The Matrix 4 because... <laughs> okay. I'm a big fan of The Matrix. The first one. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not a particular fan of the sequel. I like The World, but yeah. I'm not a particular fan of the sequels. And the Wachowskis, uh, the Wachowski sisters. Yeah. Um, yeah. No. That yeah. is, no, that is the correct. I think they now, go right? by the Wachowskis It's just the Wachowskis. But I, yes. In the current climate, they would be the Wachowski sisters. Okay. Uh, yes. They don't do anything good anymore. No. So... Have they done anything good since The Matrix? No. Okay. <laughs> they did. Is that a contentious opinion you've just put forth? No, I don't think so. I mean, I think they wrote Speed Racer, didn't they? Oh, right. Did they direct it as well? Maybe they directed it. Uh, Speed Racer, Cloud Atlas. Yeah. Which was mixed. Yeah. Um, Jupiter Ascending. Yeah, that wasn't mixed. That wasn't mixed. No. They did a show on Netflix called Sensate, which to be fair, I haven't seen. I know a lot of people do like that. Okay. I think that's it. They've okay. sort of gone in separate directions now. Right, okay. Uh, but yeah, so I'm kind of neutrally... But good or bad, it's going to be something you want to hate or love on the big screen. Yeah, it? absolutely. Yeah, same as Dune. Denny Villeneuve, one of the best uh, visual filmmakers. Yeah, his films you go to the cinema to see. Yes. And like I know that sounds a bit snobby. It's like, oh, you can't... I mean, there is... Yes, we are still given the choice of watching it yeah. at home or on the big screen. Yeah. But that... Mm, yeah. No, I mean, it's not documentaries you don't need to see on a big screen, do you? No. You know? So, no. yeah, there is a... The worst thing a film can be in the cinema is not cinematic. Yeah. Like, televisual used to be something to disparage a film when it was in the cinema. Yes. It's televisual. Yeah. Now there's no real boundary between film and television. Yeah, televisual, it still has that meaning. It still carries that implication. Yes. Just, it's just that there aren't many examples of televisual television anymore yeah I suppose televisual to me now if anything would denote another um, adjective novelistic 
if some said the film is very televisual now it, well there's a lot of there there's a lot yeah. of story there. yeah exactly yeah um, so it's kind of interesting how that like I know be. what you mean by televisual yes. but also like Fargo is a TV show but also show. television god awesome yeah exactly yes. Fargo's a TV show um, you know Haunting of Hill House is a yeah. TV show these, these don't look or feel televisual no and even yeah now there are TV shows that not only are equally well made as films mm. or equally cinematic as films but essentially function as films split into eight or ten. You hear that a yeah. lot. I feel like you could probably correct me, but I think since Stranger Things, maybe mm. it feels like the term "it's an eight-hour TV," uh, yeah. "it's an eight-hour film." Yes, that's become more popular. Yeah. Well, I would say Bly Manor could be a film. Yeah. That's essentially stretched out over True Detective's another one. True Detective. That's yeah, an, like an eight-hour film. Yeah. Yeah. So, first yeah, season, I mean. The first season, yes. Yeah. I mean, I haven't seen the other two. No, I did see season two. God, I can't remember. Yeah, you I forgot that I saw blank out. Yeah, I forgot yeah. that I saw it. Looked good. Yeah. That was it. Rachel McAdams, I think, was pretty good in it. Maybe. And who's, who's the guy? Vince Vaughn? No, no, the other guy. Colin Farrell? The other guy. <laughs> Taylor Kitsch. That's the one. Yes. I think people didn't expect him to be good, and he was and he okay. And he was pretty good. Yeah. yeah. Colin Farrell did the schlubby Colin Farrell performance. Yeah. And Vince Vaughn... I was just kind of didn't know what to think every time he was on screen. Yeah. I couldn't tell whether he was okay or terrible. Yes. Uh, but then it was terrible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, so there is a there is a distinction. But yeah, Dune, definitely a big screen mm. film that I will go and see on a big screen if that's an option near us. Yeah. In the Heights is another one, which is Lin-Manuel Miranda's film based on his own musical. Okay. Again, a big musical film, cinematic. Yeah. The Many Saints of Newark, the Sopranos kind of prequel. Okay. Now, I don't know. Obviously, we haven't really seen anything from that yet. So that could be... That could suit streaming. I don't know. Well, I mean, it's... it's um, it, Not a continuation. It's a precursor yeah. to a TV show. It has its roots in a TV show. It has its roots in a TV screen. show, yeah. And I don't know how much of the the visual language of the, of the Sopranos they're going to be adopting or whether mm. it's going to be like Young Sheldon where it's sort of completely its own thing yeah like separate to the material that it, that inspired it I imagine it's going to be like Deadwood the movie which is it's nothing there's no fundamental difference between the show and the film it just looks a bit better because of how much time has passed okay between El so Camino I, as well El Camino yes yeah. exactly yeah exactly that it's going to look close enough but, but a bit different, not quite. But then again, like, right. I mean, Deadwood, I don't know when Deadwood came out. The show? Yeah. It finished in 2006. So okay. The film was last year. Like, that probably looked fairly cinematic anyway. Like, helped by its yes. location more than anything else. Yeah. I feel yeah. like Deadwood probably preceded the whole, um, we make our TV shows look like films. Kind of. I mean, it, it, it is a good looking show. But obviously, because it's a Western, mm. technically, yeah. you would expect grand vistas. It's not that. Like, Deadwood is basically the social network in the Wild West, in as far, insofar as it's just people in rooms talking a lot. Right. Uh, they're just rooms where, you know, there's mud everywhere. Yeah. And, it, it you know, Deadwood was, it's not the Wild West sort of thing. Right. It's, it's the real Old West. Yeah. It, it's not cowboys and Indians. It's people being scalped and just spit and yeah. tobacco stained. And they say fuck a lot. And they yeah, they say fuck a lot. Yeah. Um. And cunt. They say cunt a lot. Oh, well. okay. So, yeah, it, it is a good looking show. But, ow. Um. <laughs> but 
Yes. There, there, there is a marked difference between the film and, and the TV show. Mm. And then, yeah, The Suicide Squad. I imagine that's going to be a cinematic film. Cinematic in hope. terms of how it looks or cinematic in terms of how it... Like, its reputation? Almost. No, it's like a big action... A big crazy action movie. Okay. That, a fun cinematic experience. Because I feel like that's... Because this is not news that we hate, right? Because it's still available in the cinema. So it's not like, oh, you've taken these... It's, you've it's, taken that experience away from me. It's not news that I hate yet. Okay. I don't like what it might foretell. So this is sort of precursor to news you imagine you will hate. Yes. Or news you will imagine is going to happen that you will hate. Well, I can't see the following not happening. Okay. Okay. Maybe it's for lack of imagination. They put all these films online. There's still enough anxiety about going to the cinema that people aren't going to go. Yeah. Or just the ease of uh, watching it at home. Mm. Like, oh, there's no point. Should Should we watch it on functionally Netflix, HBO Max? Or should we go to the cinema? Yeah. Ah, fuck it. Let's just stay in and watch it. Yeah. Those films are going to do so well that the company would be stupid not to do that forever. Yeah. And and just accelerate the move towards... I mean, I can see... Exclusive streaming. Obviously, like, YouTube, the amount of YouTubers is growing by the day. Mm -hmm. And there are so many people who do reviews and have channels dedicated to that sort of thing. Yeah. They're obviously just going to go... It's like, oh, I'll just watch the film on streaming. Mm Mm-hmm. Rather than like go through the hassle of getting cinema tickets, uh, I just watch it at home. Yeah, exactly. So you, even if they end up going to watch that film in the cinema, that's going to bolster the HBO numbers. Mm-hmm. I always feel a bit like that. I know we've done reviews of films like Cats and stuff. Yeah, but like we streamed Cats illegally. We did. We did it right. <laughs> You've got the, right. the dickheads who go to the cinema to see Cats, and it's like this is why Cats got made. We, we do also stream everything we love illegally. Yes. Yeah. That, that we're, that's but we have fail. a policy, don't we? We stream everything illegally. Yeah, yes, exactly. Yeah, we don't discriminate. Yeah. yeah. We stream everything illegally, and then if it's worthy of our praise and our love... We buy it. Then we go through legal channels. Yes. Because, yes, that's true. Yeah. Because yeah. there is so much. Especially oh, yeah. If we have to pay for everything we wanted to watch, then we'd have no money. No, exactly. And especially in this new world of streaming services where if you have three shows you like, they're probably... You probably have to pay three different subscription fees yeah. to watch the, them. The 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 the, the current televisual landscape demands that people break the law. I think yes. if you're a TV fan, yeah, genuinely, like if you're going to fuck us like that, then yeah. we're going to fuck you. Yeah, yeah, basically. Like, w- you know, we sort of all agreed there was a consensus on Netflix. Yeah, we're all okay. Fine, we're all going to get Netflix now. Yeah. And then Amazon came along. Okay, I suppose I can do two. Yeah, because I've can, already got an Amazon. You can account. live with. We we should probably have expected a competitor. Yeah. So this all we'll live with this. Yeah, and I'm already paying for my um, one day delivery thing. Amazon Prime. Yeah. So yeah, it's just like bonus. Yeah. And then they took it too far. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. Everyone saw how well it did. I mean, fuck it. We'll all do it then. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and I, I just worry that that's going to accelerate because of their strategy. I mean, it's going to have to collapse at some point, right? Yeah, but let's not like pro- let's not draw it closer. Let's prolong it for as long as possible, right? Oh well, yes, for for our sake, yeah, yeah. I suppose. But yeah, that's not as we've talked about this before. That's yeah. not a sustainable model. Having no. like TV that's functionally the way it is now, where you have like BBC One, BBC Two, BBC mm-hmm. Three, the replacement, the the what that will become is Netflix is Channel One, Amazon is Channel Two. Yeah, but you're paying for every individual channel. It's just not going to... I think... It can't stand up. It, it sort of aligns with, in a weird way, why there's so much political um, disharmony 
why the divide between the left and the right is so sharply drawn and why it's basically 50-50 everywhere. And that is because there are so many outlets for information mm. that you just pick one you like yeah. and you stick with it. Yeah. Because there's too much content everywhere. Mm. And so that's why the social dilemma was my one of the big watersheds on this for me. Uh, they said, you know, when you're talking to your friend and you and you say to them, well, don't you know this fact? They don't. They simply don't because their news source yeah. will not tell them that. No. And I think the same exists for... Like, we have imagined that in the future, BBC One is basically, basically going to be Netflix and you can flick over to Amazon Prime and over to... Yeah. But I don't think so. I think the, the way the world is now, there's so much demand for content of all types that people are just going to pick their little corner mm. and that will be enough to sustain the companies. So there will be no kind of monolithic, centralised televisual structure. Right. It's all just going to be, there's something over there, there's something over there. The best show ever made is on a channel you've never heard of. Yeah. I think that's the future of television, okay. unfortunately. Yeah. It does, it does make it impossible, though, to... But that's like it encourages that model is the problem. Mm-hmm. It encourages people to fly apart and yeah, yeah. I've been watching this show. What the fuck's that? Yeah, I've never heard of this. But it can't be good because I've never heard of it. Yeah, it makes it harder for people like you in particular mm-hmm. who make a concerted effort of watching everything. It's so hard. Yeah, <laughs> it's so hard to try and keep track of just everything. like yeah, yeah, just to find the thing. Yeah, not even just to keep up with the amount of content there is, but to find the content in the first place. Yeah. I mean, literally, I've what I've had to do is I think on Wikipedia there's like every channel in America basically. Mm. There's a list of every channel in America. I've had to go onto each channel, mm. go through the listing of original programming, yeah. determine what's worth watching, and then kind of bookmark those channels for any future content. Yeah, I've like it's taken a long time. I'm in a position now where it's just part of my daily routine is open all tabs flick through it <laughs> and go okay so it's like two minutes out of the day yeah but to get there took ages yeah and so much missing stuff and um but even now things still slip through the cracks so i have to have like five different portals through which i can try and determine what's on television right i've got like all those wikipedia things i've got rotten tomatoes they have what's on tv tonight mm. it's just it's it's, tight, it's exhausting it is exhausting <laughs> But it doesn't help when you're obsessive compulsive and you yeah. feel you have to watch everything. Yeah, exactly. That is well received. Um, yeah. um, do I read- do. I think there should be less television. <laughs> do you read the uh, the TV guide? No. I, what, what am I? Eighty. <laughs> they. Um, yeah. I was. Um, I was in work and like they at the front of the store. They've now set up a stand for like the Christmas TV guide. Right. You know they do it where they like I think it's like two and a half weeks. Yeah. In one issue. Mm-hmm. It's like why. Why yeah. are you even bothering anymore? This doesn't have yeah. half of the channels. Yeah, it's so archaic. Now, yeah, exactly. It? And even so, like, um, BBC, they released their entire, like, Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, Boxing Day. Mm. They released pictures of all of their scheduling on Twitter. Yeah. Genuinely, what is the point of yeah. this magazine anymore? I mean, I can see... I have fond memories of that. I have fond <laughs> yes. memories of, like, getting the Christmas magazine and reading through the channels yeah. and keeping an eye on everything. And so- But... You know, I mean, I think <laughs> we I to- don't live in that world. I, think I told you before when I was um, eleven, and the Alex Rider Stormbreaker came out, the Alex Rider film. Yeah, I was the biggest fan in the world of those books. I 
you know, worshipped those books. Mm. And I found out that the film was happening by reading like one of those uh, made for 12 year old uh, awesome magazines, yeah. you know, uh, where you got like fake goo on the cover. You know, oh, yeah, you yeah, play yeah. With it, Like yeah. those stupid magazines. And it was coming out the next week. And it was a big feature on Alex Rider, all these stills and everything. Nowadays, I would hear about that the second the second they decided a producer to do it. thought of yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. You know, that news is out they there. They would now. tweet, we're going to make an Alex Rider film. Yeah. Like, okay. So I, I pointed out to you, didn't I? Because the Game Awards happened very recently yeah. as of time of recording. God knows when this episode will end up out in the ether. <laughs> yeah. But at the time of recording, the Game Awards are less than a week. It's been less than a week. Yes. Um, and they've got an award for most anticipated game. Yeah. And genuinely, two <laughs> of the games that were nominated don't even have titles yet. Right. Like they, they, they. The, I think God of War sequel, as it's currently known, yes. and as it was known during the Game Awards. Yeah. We genuinely have like a 30 second teaser of the logo sort of appearing. Right. And that's the only, that's all that exists regarding that thing. And it got nominated for a fucking award, you know? Yeah, I think like the Game Awards, surely a good, just a good rule of thumb would be if the game has a release date. Yeah. If it's been given a release date, yes. then you can do your most anticipated. Yeah. Game. How do you quantify that even? I know all awards are kind of arbitrary on some level, mm. but how do you quantify most anticipated? According to whom? Yeah, exactly. Um, but the TV thing, the TV guide, I still see the legacy of that in my mother, who's 50. Mm. Uh, if she says, oh, apparently there's a new sh- good show on, it's invariably on ITV or BBC. Because yeah. the girls at work watch BBC and ITV. I you see, know? okay. So I still, but I can see it dying. Like, one in ten will be a Netflix show now. Okay. I've heard about this new good show and it'll be on Netflix. And so I can see it permeating the the generation gap. Yeah, you know? sort of slowly, insidiously creeping yes. in. It's taking her into yeah. the... Dragging her I mean, into the modern age. When my gra- grandfather got Netflix, that was like a... No. <laughs> All right, no, we've gone no. too far yeah. now. You're allowed movies for men and Sky Sports. <laughs> <laughs> That's all you're allowed. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, talking of the Game Awards. Oh yeah, we'll jump onto that. Yeah, uh, were, we, were we done with Warner Brothers? And I think so. Right? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But it, yeah. The biggest thing about that is just it's a surprise, I guess. Yeah. There are certain films where you would imagine they'd want to keep those for the cinema, if not only to keep this false sense of oh, this film is special. Yes. You can only see it in a cinema because it's important. Mm. Um, yeah, it's just weird that they've they must it must work out for them financially. Well, yeah, it's right weird because of how kind of, yeah, bold it is in a way. With, like them just saying, because everything was just, every film was being delayed two months, one month, two yeah. months. They're just going, fuck it. Next year is a write-off. It's all going online. It must, yeah, maybe it's actually, it's practical. Yeah. It's purely a practical reason they've done it. I think it also, it's emblematic of our shifted expectations and kind of ennui in a way, mm. which is we all thought it was going to be over next week. And then in maybe a month, yeah. maybe six months. Now that we're kind of apprehending that we're stuck with it, yeah. Uh, everyone's going. All right, yeah. Um, I cancelled my holiday. You know, whereas a few months ago I would have uh, maybe held on to my holiday booking that was in three months' time. Yeah. I'm now just saying all of next year I'm not doing anything. Yeah. <laughs> so it's kind of bleak in that way. But one of the harshest critics is, of course, Christopher Nolan. Yes. Who presented at the Game Awards. Yes. So, well, Two little, little segues little, there. Little yeah. thing, yeah. Yeah, there we go. Yeah. Um, we still got it, Eddie. We still we, got we, it. We still got we it. We don't need you. Well, 
I'll, maybe let's talk about him before the Game Awards because there's only one little bit about him. But when they picked him to... Did it, was it best game that he presented? He, yeah, he presented Game of the Year. Yeah, they part of their statement was that his storytelling transcends mediums. Yeah. Which sounds good. That sounds like a good thing for your storytelling to do. Yeah. But what does it mean? <laughs> exactly. Transcends mediums. I suppose that what they were trying to say is his films are good. That was yeah. That was their college way of saying we like his films. Yeah, his films are good, and that's why he's presenting a game award. Yes, because he's never he's never ventured into the world of video games, has he? No, I mean I think Inception. There was talk at one point of him trying to make an Inception game. Yeah, and I think there is, there is a Batman Begins video game. Yeah, I but doubt he, he had anything to do with that. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if it's because they like when they would do they don't really do it anymore. But when they were yeah. doing video game movie tie-ins, tie-ins yeah. occasionally they would cast the actor from the film in the mm. game itself like Pirates of the Caribbean they did that they got Johnny Depp right. um, there's like a few games couldn't think of anything else James <laughs> Bond they got Daniel Craig yeah exactly got, yeah. yeah. although I think um, oh what was it called was it Nightfire not Nightfire that's an older one that was a Brosnan one yeah um, it was because Quantum of Solace happened yeah then there was one called Bloodstone or something yeah I think that's the yeah. video game I think that was supposed to replace the Bond movies because they yeah. said after Quantum of Solace we're done with Bond movies right so the game was supposed to replace that okay and then for the 50th, 50, for the 50th they did Skyfall yeah and Skyfall was a massive success yes. so they've just carried on now yeah yeah um, but yeah he was like he was obviously in that but that was in lieu of there being a film. Yes. But they do do that. They bring in real people. But yeah, even so, I imagine Nolan had nothing to do with the Batman Begins video game. No, I highly doubt it. Yeah. It's rubbish, right? Probably. They all are. I genuinely have no idea. Okay. But yeah, there, is, there, <laughs> there aren't many good yeah. video game tie-in, uh, movie tie-in games. Yes. Uh, but this thing about it transcending mediums, um, media, anyway, technically, actually, Game Awards, uh, yeah, because mediums imply it doesn't. It's not even. A, it's not a film. It's not. Yeah, a, yeah. It's not a TV show. Yeah, it's not yeah. a game. It's that good where it's not a thing. Yes, and like you, I said that to you, saying like, okay, they're saying this about one of the most staunchly cinematic filmmakers out there. Yeah, and then you said, yeah, what does that even mean? That it's beyond all formats. Yeah, that it's so good it could also be this it's so good it doesn't yeah. exist in it a form that you can consume it yeah it's all that I hate it when people say that and I think it led me saying to you um, public discourse needs more screenwriters and fewer novelists yeah we need people who just get to the point mm. I'm reading a book at the moment by Douglas Murray um, and you know most books in the political commentary cultural commentary space are written by quote unquote novelists Okay, you know, a lot of vague. Right, what what are they? What point are they making? I'm not quite sure. The great thing about conservative writers, if nothing else, is that they get to the point. They write <laughs> the point. They give evidence for the point, and they move on to the next point. Yeah. Um, and I think public discourse needs more of that rather than this. It transcends media. What does that mean? Yeah. What does that mean? It's I, just, I, I hate that. I mean, the, the game awards in general, they have this air of, oh look, we're proper. Mm. we're legit and that's definitely part of that is like they've, they've got like wh- when it came to when you could vote for the winner on the mm. website they had like a little description as to what each category meant yeah and it was like oh it's the um, the game that made the most advances in 
in accessibility yes uh, to what it's like what isn't it there's basically a social justice award as well isn't there <laughs> I think that was the one I think it was um, no games for impact impact yeah. yeah and I think I just said you read out that um, category and I just said right what gay game won then yeah <laughs> it was wasn't it it, it was, was a game conversion therapy or something yeah there was a uh, it might not have been the whole game but there was a scene in the game we went on the wikipedia to look yeah. don't not don't at me what was it called tell me why Right, yeah. Um, Tell me away. Exactly, yeah. yeah, everyone. Which I didn't even know was out. Right. Like, that's how you know mm. that it's not a legitimate winner of Games for Impact, but I didn't even know the fucking game had been released yet. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, there's a scene in now where apparently, like, a transgender conversion therapy session happens. Something. Yeah, it's yeah. like, all right, okay, that's yeah, why you won. Was... Um, yeah. And also, it was one of those games where there's, like, no gameplay in it. It's basically mm. just a string of cutscenes, and occasionally you get to press a button. Yeah. It's one of those by the looks of it. thing is, as well, like, even shit films transcend their medium. Depending on how you're defining it, every film is a spirit, and the audience is the medium. In that the film leaves its parameters yeah. and enters your consciousness. Well, to jump ahead slightly, uh, we're going to be reviewing Mank soon. Yes. Um, and is it the the studio head at MGM mm-hmm. where he says that um, he's sort of like as they're going somewhere he's sort of talking to two of the characters mm. and he says that um, film is like the one place where the audience are buying a memory like right. the, the film still belongs to the person who owns it mm-hmm. uh, the person who sold it I yes. should say all that the audience are buying are a memory yeah and yeah that's sort of a, yeah it reminded me of that what you've just yeah, said yeah yeah like the, if, if if no cinema transcended um, its medium no one would be making it no it would be an unseen photograph yeah it doesn't exist it's the, it's the tree falling in the forest with nobody to hear it yeah exactly so yeah it's such a stupid um, just say you like him as a director yeah <laughs> like what is so wrong about that we like Christopher Nolan as a director his storytelling is good yeah <laughs> You know. Look, guys, we got Christopher Nolan. Yes. That's what they wanted. To That's say. what they wanted to say. Especially since last year, the game of the the game of the year award was presented by Vin Diesel. I think <laughs> Vin Diesel okay. and the what's her name? She's in Lost as well. The one who's in the Fast and Furious films. Um, Michelle Rodriguez. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. She, her, and Vin Diesel. But I don't think she talked at all. I think it was just Vin Diesel talking about how much he likes games. Were they there to promote Fast and the Furious? Yeah, they were. Okay. But the Fast and the Furious video game. Right, okay. Oh, that's Not happening, the film. No. This game that we've heard nothing else but about. But that's the thing. If I was a hardcore gamer, mm. I don't really want icons of cinema presenting awards. Why? Bring in some... I guess it's for people like me who wouldn't otherwise watch it. I think it's for that, and I think it is genuinely to sort of legitimize the awards a little bit. It's to make but it feel like... But that legitimize it to me. It's like when they get... I don't know. If if they got a novelist to present the Golden Globe. Yeah. Like why are you... A, you're better than this. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, like, B, why are you here? I yeah. don't understand. No, no. I feel it, like Michelle Obama presented an Oscar once, didn't she? Oh, did she? Yeah, for Best Picture, I think. Oh, okay. Is that, well, I mean, that, that if nothing else, betrays just the fact that there is no gap between politics and culture anymore. Yeah. Like, you know, politics is entertainment. And we all love the Obamas. <laughs> but... Yeah, it's like, no, like, I want Steven Spielberg presenting the Best Picture Oscar. Yeah. You know? And I want the bloke, um, who's the guy, the, the, the Japanese dude, they're all Japanese in gaming. But the, the, <laughs> you can't say uh, that. They're, they're not. <laughs> well, they are, aren't they? There's a lot of Japanese. There's a lot of them, but they're not all Japanese. Okay. Um, I don't think that's, like, a, a bigoted thing to say, is it? Is it not? All gaming things are Japanese. No, that's just... It's inaccurate. 
Yeah. But it's just kind of a nothing statement. Anyway, the Hideo... Hideo Kojima. Yes. I want him presenting best game. Yeah. Or Did someone he, like that. He must have at some point. But you know, though, like Vin, Vin Diesel. Yeah. Well, Vin Diesel is in a video game. Um, Arc 2, I think it is. Oh, that was an awful trailer. An <laughs> awful trailer. I, but that, that that was a befitting... Um, yes. Me bringing up how bad it was. Yeah, my yeah. terrible grammar there. Yeah. I mean, it was like... It's just a shit-looking trailer, but it was terribly put together. There were, like, loads of um, black frames where clearly they just hadn't edited it together properly. Yeah. And the blood looked like... It was like PS1 blood, where it wasn't liquid. It was kind of like a a gaseous puff. Okay. It just looked shit. Yeah, yeah. Like, shocking, considering that it was... But then, like, that was announced. Like, you see, like, this generic, like, you know, girl, tribal-looking girl... Mm. Um, and then someone stands next to him and sort of bends down so that he's in view of the camera and it's Vin Diesel. Okay. Like, what? Is is tribal looking girl a racial euphemism? No. Or is she in, or does she have face paint? Yeah, stuff? face okay. paint and like caveman attire. Okay. Yeah, I wasn't, yeah. She's not, the, va- she's not vaguely Native American. No. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. And then after that, they announced that they're doing like an animated TV series that has like him, he's in it. Uh, David Tennant's in it. I think Jeffrey right. Wright's in it. Okay. There's like some like decent people yes. in this. It's just like a massive like what the fuck's going on? Right. But I feel like that's becoming more common in games as well. Is they they um they they're like casting a major actor mm. in like a, a a sort of supporting role. Yeah. So obviously Vin Diesel is supposed to be the big pull for Arc Two. Mm-hmm. Cyberpunk 2077 has just come out. Obviously, Keanu Reeves is yeah. in that. Spacey. Uh, Kevin Spacey in Call of Duty. Yeah. Norman Reedus in Death Stranding. Yeah. Where it's like, we're selling our games on our star power yeah. now. Because technology has reached the point. It has reached the point where we can just put a person in a game. In a game. And I think that that is the future of gaming. It's going to be movie stars. Yeah. I think that is the way it's going to oh, be. Oh, yeah. I think gaming will be sort of... Um, what era of film would you say that that's reflective of? Where it's like, oh, look, here's our... Like, most of our cast is no one, mm. but we've got, like, this really famous actor in here that's supposed to pull you in. Um, I think that's fairly... That's been fairly universal throughout the history of cinema. Maybe not cinema, then. Maybe television would okay. be better. Do TV shows do oh, that? Oh, uh, well, okay, yeah. So, with TV shows, you got guest stars in, like, ER... Yeah, and stuff like that. You had, t- I mean, back in the day, you had film stars and then you had TV stars. Yeah, two very different things. Um, I if, feel like in when- an era where televisual would have meant twee and ba- and not that well produced and not good looking. Yeah, yeah. And um, I feel like we're we're at the point now with television where nobody bats an eye if no. um, like a film star is in the show. Yeah, I think. But it- there was there was once a time where it did genuinely feel like a not a cynical move, but like a oh, you've clearly just put this guy in this cast yeah. to pull in the punters. I'm trying to think of what the first big one would have been. I mean, Kiva Sutherland in 24, he was like quite a well-known star before that. Okay. But I wouldn't say enough that you'd go, oh, they pulled in a movie star. Yeah. I don't know. But yeah, there was... Um, it's around the time of Lost and House that this starts happening. Okay. Where they stop the guest stars and then they start to become leads. Mm. And now it's at the point where you will get A-list, um, like, MCU actors in shows you, it, 
uh, that you've never heard of. Yeah. As leads and shows, you know, because yeah. everyone wants to do TV now because it got awesome. Like Nicole Kidman and Hugh Grant in The Undoing or yeah. Elizabeth Olsen in a show called Sorry for Your Loss. Have you ever heard of that? No. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> Tom it's Hardy, when he, what was that BBC show he did? Taboo. Yeah, that felt very much like a, look, we got Tom Hardy. Yeah, yeah. Let's make a show because we've got Tom Hardy. Well, yeah, Tom Hardy is a supporting actor in Peaky Blinders. Yeah. Um, yes. Yeah, so the, another b- big thing that I noticed in, uh, well, with you just going through the awards with me, uh, I don't know when this would have happened, but as far as TV goes, there was a time when the, what defined a TV show was its episodic nature. That sounds so stupid. But what, <laughs> I mean that you had plots that kind of re- were resolved with it over the course of the episode. Yeah. And they were mostly procedural. So you had sitcoms that were like, that were families. Yeah. And they had a new thing every week. And then you had dramas that were set in hospitals or police stations mm. where there was a new case or a new patient every week. Yeah. That's the way it went. Uh, 22, 24 episodes a season. Um, and then you started to get shows like The Sopranos that were still, you know, very serialized. But, and uh, you know, smaller stories, but still with big worlds. Yeah. And then I think maybe Rectify was the first show I saw where I thought, right, that's a film mm. that's being done on television. Okay. Not in terms of its look necessarily. Just, I mean, Rectify is a show about a man who is on death row for the better part of 20 years and then is released and has to adjust to life. Yeah. That is not a big, expansive universe building TV show mm. that's a little independent film yeah yeah definitely. and yeah after that TV started doing TV that was more film like in that respect and it seems that games are becoming that as well like indie games at the moment but that game about uh, the gay conversion oh therapy yeah, yeah or whatever I mean that that studio uh, what's it called Don't Nod Don't right. Nod I can't remember yeah. but that's their thing they'll okay. do like um, little yeah, personal like, stories. Yeah, yeah. What was the one before it? Um, Life is strange. I think is the one before it, where it was like this girl. It was like a high school movie mm-hmm. um, where this girl meets another girl. Mm-hmm. I think they enter like a lesbian relationship, right? But she sort of functions as the you know, like those indie movies where you've got like this shy introvert, mm-hmm. and then they meet a more outgoing individual who sort of coaches them through manic pixie dream girl. Yeah, they kind of yeah. coach them through. Um, the high school experience mm-hmm. and then as that as their relationship unfolds what once seemed like a perfect figure mm-hmm. sort of unravels and becomes like this mess yes it's that yes which okay. is that is a film right okay it's the perks of being a wallflower kind of yeah right there's this weird like just to, to make it a video game they add this weird like time travel mechanic in there as well right but it is essentially just that film uh, like done as a video game yes yeah okay uh, and then you've got the big one, The Last of Us Part Two, mm-hmm. which won, I think, basically everything it was nominated for, so like fourteen awards or something ridiculous <laughs> okay. like that. Um, where that kind of feels like a film as well, mm-hmm. where it's like you've got um, you've got Ellie, the girl, mm-hmm. um, who <laughs> did, yeah. it shows how little I know about, yeah. it, I don't know anything, but yeah, she she's um, obviously the first Last of Us. You play as uh, a guy called Joel. <laughs> the first Last of Us, I like that. <laughs> Yeah, um, you play as a guy called Joel, whose yeah. daughter gets um, murdered at the birth of this zombie apocalypse, yeah. zombie esque apocalypse, because mm-hmm. they're not 
strictly zombies. They're like 28 day zombies, are they? No, well, they, they're based on, you probably know them. You know, there's like a certain fungi that like, yeah, infect yeah. ants and sort of zombify yeah, yeah. them yeah, while yeah. they're still alive. It's that, but like, like a fungus, basically. But they're, but they're functionally zombies. I, yeah. But are they 28 do they run? A couple of them do. Okay. But not mm, not mainly. What are they, what's the name for those? Is it berserkers? Is that what they're called? Oh, maybe, yeah. Zombies that do run, you know, yeah. 28 day style. Uh, yeah, carry on. Yeah, so his daughter dies at the birth of this sort of zombie-esque apocalypse, and then... She dies at the birth. It's like, circle <laughs> of life, man. The first of the last of us, death at the birth. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You're going deep this episode. <laughs> um, and then he sort of becomes like a, like a courier in the mm-hmm. apocalypse. I think that's essentially what he does. And he's asked to transport this young girl um, across America yeah. to this facility because she is immune to the virus. Mm-hmm. So he's reluctant and he's like, oh no, my daughter's dead. I can't be doing with this bitch. <laughs> and she's like, well, fuck you. I'm a teenage girl and I'm moody. Yeah. Um, but they form like a genuine, mm-hmm. he becomes, she becomes like a surrogate daughter yes. basically and they form her. Again, feels like a very filmic kind of, Yeah. Um, it's a road trip movie where these two characters hate each other and then they get to know yeah. each other. Um, and at the end of the game, he takes her to the facility, finds out that they are going to experiment on her to sort of find the cure, but mm. she will die in the process. Right. So he breaks her out of the facility. Okay. Last of Us 2 picks up. They've got, they're have they kind of in this um, sort of gated off community yes. where everyone's like trying to live like a normal town. Mm-hmm. Um, she is a lesbian. So this was established in like mm. DLC, but she's a lesbian now. And gated community meaning... It's kind of makeshift and roughshod, like keeping out the barbarians as opposed to gentrified. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, they've got like, you know, massive gates. And like watchtowers and spotlights yeah, and all that. Okay. Yeah, it's yeah. not, you know, like, oh, we're in the apocalypse. Yeah, it's, it's not a place where as people are pruning their roses, they they glance askance at any black drivers. Through the <laughs> it's not. No, no okay. it's not that. Um, yeah, so she's sort of um, like, she's a lesbian now. I assume that's relevant to the story. Sure. I don't know. But, like, it's it's clear the tensions have formed between her and Joel, her surrogate mm. father. Um, and then he gets killed quite brutally mm. very early on in the story. So the, 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 her goal is that she's going to hunt down the people who killed Joel and get her revenge. Yeah. And she finally tracks down the girl that killed him. Mm-hmm. And then the game flashes back to earlier in the girl who killed him's life and mm. you play as her for a while right. the idea being that um, oh we're going to see her perspective I'm going to see that she's not the monster that you the assume she is in someone else's shoes exactly yeah. yeah so it's sort of like the the whole um, at the end Ellie doesn't kill her so the whole point of it is like you know revenge is just a, a nasty cycle the whole world blind all that yeah exactly yeah. it's that kind of bullshit um, but there's actually I want to bring it up just because I think it's a great little I've told this to you but I think it's a great little um, summary mm-hmm. um, th- obviously like with the lesbian stuff and I think like in the lead up to the release of the game and also afterwards as well Naughty Dog are the developers but like Neil Druckmann is the game's like director and I think re- lead writer as well okay. he seemed to push back against people who didn't like the story mm-hmm. Um and people who didn't like certain aspects of the story and there were accusations being thrown around of like, oh, you just, you, you hate gays and you yeah, hate women okay. and all that bullshit. Yeah, yeah. So there's a little bit of those kind of politics in the in that camp. Yes. Um, and there was a reviewer, can't quite remember wh- where it was from because I saw it secondhand. But the summary that they gave was the problem with The Last of Us Part 2 is that it's a game about right and wrong written by people who think they're always right. 
Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. That's exactly the problem with it. That's exactly the problem with most entertainment, actually, these days. At the moment, yeah. Um, We've we've had this conversation on the podcast a few times, but uh, yeah, now you have to decide whether a film is art or propaganda. Yeah, genuinely. Uh, I mean, how many pieces of media in the run-up to the election were very clearly... Oh, yeah. Like, like, oh, Donald Trump is bad. You know Donald Trump is bad, right? We're not telling you Donald Trump is bad, which is a TV show. Or even films that were, were conceived and made... Um, sort of before Don- or conceived before Donald Trump was a thing yeah uh, that were you know supposed to be made 12 years ago or whatever mm. um, were then postponed pushed back nearer the election yeah if they had a vague relevance perhaps to someone so like Trial of the Chicago 7 which we both like a lot mm. um, that was I, I think that was scheduled to be around the election because it's a film about Lefties kind of winning this big court case. Yeah. Well, they didn't actually win today, but you know, like lefties taking a stand against the right wing authoritarians. Yes. Yeah. Um, so anything that anything vaguely that might have themes that overlap. Yeah. Yes. So yeah, the entire thing. Uh, again, there's no boundary anymore. There, there is no difference between politics and culture. No. You just make films about what you think about um, the world, which yeah. is what people have always done, but usually you found out what you thought as you wrote the film. Yes, you didn't go in yeah. knowing that this is going to be an anti-conservative or this yes. is going to be an anti-abortion or like nothing I've, like that. I've heard Jordan Peterson talk about this, why crime and punishment are so great is because that was written not knowing where the story would take the character, mm. clearly. Mm. It just kind of, it charted it the psychological contours of the main character yeah. as he kind of uh, devolves into kind of guilty insanity. Mm. Compare that with someone like um, Margaret Atwood, who wrote The Handmaid's Tale, yeah. who knew exactly what the point was, you know. Um, and there's a fine line, because obviously sometimes you want to write something because you have a point you want to make. Yeah, of course. But you have to be open to being surprised by yourself. Yeah. is the most important thing. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know I thought that. And also, don't be dishonest about it. Yeah. Like, if, if you're... Um, yeah, don't don't do- presenting it as kind of impartial, yeah. like oh, this is a film about characters. Don't, don't stage an episode of The West Wing and and claim that you just want people to go and vote for it doesn't matter who. Yeah, just be honest with me that you want me to vote for Biden. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Things like that. I think this spiraled off from you saying that like games are starting to do like films. Yeah. Like TV was doing it. We're like, oh, this is clearly a film. Now games mm-hmm. are kind of doing it. Yeah. Yeah. I don't like that. No, you, you, what don't you like about it? Well, I think I sort of touched on this with Eddie during our um, fun divided. Yeah, but it feels like I mean, for one thing, whenever films ta- well, whenever films, whenever games tackle film ideas, mm. like there are often ideas that have already been done in film. Yeah, they're already very familiar concepts. It depends how far back you want to go. If you want to go back to like um, like Metroid, for example, mm. which is like a two D. Um, side-scroller game like that is very clearly inspired by Alien there's a lot of iconography and yeah. stuff that's trying to parallel the Alien films but if you go to like more current examples like um, Tell Me Why and The Last of Us mm. like those the the way that we're able to recognise that those are filmic that those are cinematic in that respect is because those are ideas that have already because they're pastiches yeah they've been done countless times before I mean L.A. Noir when I first played it I was quite a big fan of it mm. and you know everyone said about that game I think that was one of the big watersheds into oh films can be uh, games can be films now yeah um, 
because I, I remember Mark Kermode did a special about L.A. Noir. Oh, right. Okay. And uh, I mean, L.A. Noir is L.A. Confidential. Right. With more stuff. But like the plot beats and even the locations, it's all just about property development and like, yeah, it's just LA Confidential. Yeah. Corrupt head of the police. It ends with a funeral where like the bad guys have sort of won. Yeah, it's just like, um, I don't like that about it. Mm. And obviously saying that video games are like films can mean two things, right? It can mean they're like The Last of Us or Alain Noir where they are cinematic. Yeah. Or it can mean they're tiny stories that only an indie film Yes, would do like the gay conversion therapy. Thing. Yeah, or you can do. You can even bring in games like um, Heavy Rain and Until Dawn, right. where they are literally films. Yes, you just get to push a button every now and again. Yeah, you kind yeah. of choose where the narrative branches off to, yeah. but you are essentially watching a twenty-hour film. Yeah, playing out. That as well kind of annoys me. Again, I covered it. I covered it with Eddie, where I said that um, I prefer games that take their structure more from TV shows. I suppose right. where they feel like. It is one story, but you can kind of divide it up into episodes. Mm-hmm. Like The Last of Us Part 2, I haven't played, but from what I remember from the first Last of Us, that is structured like a film as well. Mm-hmm. And it's just exhausting because there's so much of it. Yeah. And there's no like natural break in the story mm-hmm. where it feels like, okay, it feels like we've sort of achieved something now. It's like, no, we're just, we're constantly striving to the same kind of goal. Yeah. And you get the occasional roadblock to make you feel like, Whereas with, um, this is the example I gave in that episode, with Persona 5, for example, every time you recruit a new person into your party, mm. a sort of mini story kind of starts. Yes. And that is resolved when they become a permanent member of your party. Yeah. So even though it's one story, you do have those kind of like natural breaks mm-hmm. to make it so, to make it easier to digest it. Yes. And to sort of experience it. Like rather chapters. Than, yeah, chapters, yeah. rather than just like 30 hours of misery. Which I think is basically what The Last of Us Part 2 is. It's 30 hours of just, oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know. Well, another thing I hate, I mean, in terms of, like, heavy rain, where you could influence the ending and all that sort of thing. Mm. I guess that has its place with some games, but I also do, like, definitive storytelling. Yeah. Like, uh, they've done it on Netflix with Black Mirror, and I think Kimmy Schmidt did a special where you choose where the plot goes. Mm. Yeah, well, you know, you have options and you choose where it goes. Yeah. It's like, I, I don't... You, you shouldn't write by committee in that way. No. If Dickens had said, right, what should the next chapter be about? <laughs> no, like, you you have your vision, execute it. Yeah. You know? Well, it's, uh, not, it's, it's not necessarily about writing it by committee. It's it's more about, um, I suppose they would see it as like, oh, you're personalizing the story. Like, I whatever guess, you yeah. think is the right way this story is, like, that's, what's, that's how it's unfolding. Yeah, that's not art. No, and it does... She, it does devalue those yeah. endings because no one ending is correct. No. But the way it should work, right, is that the, the painter presents his portrait mm. and you go, right, this is the portrait. What do you think about that? Yeah. Rather than they go, oh, yeah, I don't, I didn't like that bit. Oh, I'll just fuck it. I'll paint it red. Yeah. I'll scrub this back. Right, or here is my portrait. Now, what color should it be? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, no, this is what it is. You can think and feel whatever you want about it. Yeah. This is what it is. Yeah. 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 <laughs> That was its own little tangent. Yes. Um, did we finish the Nolan point, even? Like, there was yeah, that whole business so. with them saying, oh, his storytelling transcends me. It was bullshit. Yeah. But it's also relevant in the sense that Nolan doesn't like this Warner Brothers. <laughs> no, he doesn't. He doesn't like what Warner Brothers have done. No. Um, is he just being a, a fuddy-duddy? Or do you think he has a point? Well, he has a point. 
he at least has a point. I don't know whether he's totally correct. Okay. Because um, we've had what, similar... What's the quote? What's the quote? Oh, what God. Um, imagine, like, going to bed or whatever. Yeah, it was something like, imagine you've, you've poured all your uh, time and energy... Mm. Like, imagine all of the people who have poured all of their time and energy into creating the best possible uh, film they could. Mm. Um, like, designed to be watched in the best possible circumstances. And you wake up to find out that it's going to be streamed on the worst streaming platform. Yeah, yeah. Like from, from the greatest studio to the worst. Yeah, the, the greatest yeah. studios put in the best possible yeah. efforts to be streamed on the worst possible platform. Yeah. Yeah, it's an, unne- an unnecessary dig, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. I don't know what motivated him. Well, you to pointed say out that. that he was kind of like, um, he was sort of bolstering WB a little bit so that he wouldn't yeah, yeah, lose yeah. lose face with them. Yeah. Like, oh, the greatest studio, but yeah, yeah. this fucking shit, this shit piece thing. of shit platform that we're on. I mean, I always admire integrity, you know, like he's saying what he thinks and that's good. Yeah. Uh, it's no surprise. I mean, are people surprised? It's him, Tarantino, Scorsese. Yeah. They've all been advocates for, you know, the big screen experience. Well, I was going to say we've had similar, maybe not so much with Scorsese because that was about a specific type yeah. of film. Yeah. Marvel film specifically, mm-hmm. him saying that they were... But that's the thing. Like, if I remember the quote correctly, he doesn't even say that they're um, that Marvel films are basically roller coasters. He said that that type of he didn't call them out specifically. He just kind of like it's been paraphrased to the point where people are saying that he was saying he didn't like Marvel films because they were roller coasters. I think he said it's not cinema. It's yeah. like it's like a theme park. Yeah, it's nothing bad about that. It is what it is, but it's not cinema. Yeah, and yeah. that sort of spiraled into people saying, "Oh, he hates Marvel he hates because Marvel. it's not proper." Yeah, and, uh, that wasn't the case. But, but also, if Martin Scorsese did hate Marvel, would you be surprised? Yeah, <laughs> he's a veteran. He's like in his seventies or eighties. Yeah, directing some of the best films of all time. He's obviously gonna. Let's face it. He's going to be a bit snobby. Yeah. Do you expect him to lap up Marvel? No, of course he's going to dislike it. Yeah. A- any kind of film fan. Uh, pays lip service to hating Marvel, I think. Yeah, um, and for, for all this, um, you know, when, when Infinity War and Endgame came out, all of these discussions about, oh, we had the writers in and we were, yeah. you know, we spent a year figuring this out. So what's the best way to end this story? Yeah. How do we improve this franchise? How do we, like, mold these characters into something that they should be? Mm. Like, for all of this talk about, oh, you know, we're bringing in people to make sure the story is correct. and the Like, you've got instances where Edgar Wright had yes. to leave because of creative differences yes. and they were like there was another I can't remember which film it was but there was another one where they lost like two or three directors yeah um, obviously um, Ro- uh, Solo they, Solo was, as well yeah, yeah. I mean yeah Solo is Star Wars but Star it's Wars, yeah, yeah. still Disney yeah like yeah these films are not auteur friendly and Scorsese no. is the auteur yes of course he's not going to love them yeah because there's a difference in philosophy there is he the, the... I'm not saying that every one of his films is a masterpiece but is he the greatest living filmmaker director in a sense again I don't want to say that I prefer The Irishman to Parasite yeah but just in terms of his legacy yeah his legacy and his consistency his consistency and his outputs like like you could say like oh Edgar Wright hasn't had a bad film yet but he's made five exactly Scorsese's made significantly more than that yeah, so in that sense, is he the greatest living director? He might well be. He might be. He genuinely might well be. Yeah. I think his films are just going to... Um, I mean, you know, they influenced Joker. <laughs> like, yeah. they, they're, they're sort of at that point where they're so well established. It's like, oh, superhero movies are aping them now. Yes. But, you know, he's. I think his films are definitely going to be... Um, 
like it's weird because like Spielberg's films are classics. Yeah, like E.T., Jurassic Park, they're all classics. Mm-hmm. But he's more of a. I think he's seen more as like an entertainment filmmaker. Yeah, yeah, he's a mainstream yeah. popcorn director. Like he's he's a household name, and I think yeah. if most people, if you ask most people, think of a director, mm. they'll say Spielberg. Yeah, he's the most famous director of all time. Yes, arguably. but I think Scorsese's films have more weight to them gravitas yeah Yeah, they have more gravitas yeah. if you're thinking of a filmmaker with gravitas and purpose yeah and, like Scorsese is the one you think of yeah I think it's uh, sort of a, an age thing isn't it I mean Spielberg does vacillate between they're all big studio films obviously but he vacillates between Popcorn and Schindler's List yeah um, Scorsese basically just does Schindler's List with the exception of Hugo maybe yeah um, he's never done a big brazen Main, I guess The Wolf of Wall Street is his most uh, mainstream film. Yeah, that's probably the closest. Yeah, but he's not that guy. It's you grow up, you fall in love with cinema because of Steven Spielberg. Mm-hmm. And then when you're 15, you go, right, you're ready for Taxi Driver? Yeah. You know, that's, you You uh, graduate to yes. Martin Scorsese. Yeah, yeah uh, where yeah. do you graduate from? After Martin Scorsese. After Martin Scorsese. That's the thing. Not not necessarily to anything better. It You expand, I think, rather yeah. than... Um, improve. Mm. It's like, right, okay, ooh, French cinema, ooh, Japanese cinema. You know, yeah. you, you start going outwards at that point. Mm. Uh, yes, I mean, there's no real, in my opinion, no real going up from Taxi Driver. Mm. Uh, it just encourages you to try and watch everything you can, really. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so Christopher Nolan and his distaste. I mean, I just thought it was premature, if nothing else. Like, you call HBO Max the worst streaming service. And again, I'm not sure what motivated that, whether it was the way it's ergonomy or it's availability or the, it's content. Mm. Yes, content-wise, thus far, it's not good. Okay. But it only launched this year. Yeah, on it, HBO... It needs some time. On HBO, the good one of the good ones. HBO is the best, historically, the best uh, channel. Okay. Now, not so much. For, for a time, if the show was HBO, it was good. Okay. It's it's a modern masterpiece if it's HBO. Right. Six Feet Under, The Sopranos, Deadwood, you know. There was like the early noughties. Everything they did was great. Mm. And now it's hit or miss with HBO. Okay. Uh, HBO Max, it feels like a distinct thing. Mm. It's not HBO. What are the shows they've done so far? Raised by Wolves, which is the Ridley Scott kind of high sci-fi, oh, hard yeah. sci-fi thing. Uh, Love Life, which is rubbish. And uh, a show called The Flight Attendant with Kaylee Cuoco, which is okay. But that's like an eight-part murder mystery thing. Right. They haven't done anything yet, really. Mm. So it does seem a bit early days to be calling the worst. (laughs) What is the worst one? What is the worst streaming platform? Netflix has just done so much that some of it is really good. Yeah. Same with Amazon at this point. Apple? Like Apple have done yeah. like one or two good things, maybe? Yeah, because they released a lot at once and not much of it was good. No. Yeah, maybe it's Apple. Yeah. Maybe it's Apple. But I know um, that there are streaming services even beyond that that I'm not even... Lo- well, like, Quibi, if you count Quibi. Yeah, Quibi, yes. Mm. But I don't think you can. You can't... It's Well, they are already fucking over. Fucking dead. You can't it's really already over. It. Um... Like CBS? What does CBS have besides Star Trek? And they not have even Star, Star Trek. Trek. Yeah, they have... Um, but it's Picard and what's it called? Discovery. Discovery, and they've got um, that crappy cartoon. Oh, Lower Decks. Lower Decks. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. What else have they got? They got a show called Interrogation, which wasn't any good. Um, 
Oh, it's not Disney. No, that, that I think that was CBS. Yeah, that's kind of it. And the stand, they're doing the, the Stephen King adaptation oh, right. of the stand, okay. but that's not been getting brilliant reviews. Oh dear. Yeah, maybe it's them. Maybe okay. it's CBS All Access. Yeah, because Apple at least have Beastie Boys story. Yes, and the morning show isn't terrible. Okay, but and trying, I really like trying as well. Yeah, exactly. You, you, no, no idea. No, I was thinking of kidding. <laughs> Oh, kidding! What, kidding is all right. Is that Apple? No, kidding was Showtime. Ah, right. Not streaming. Okay. So, uh, yeah, are we done with all that stuff. <laughs> I think so. Okay. So Nolan has a bit of a point, but well, the point because they weren't notified is the crucial thing, right? Oh yeah, that's yeah. that's what became clear yeah. is that um, no one was told yeah. that this deal was in effect, yeah, or that this deal was even hap- like being discussed. That's the thing. It is the company's prerogative. They own the property. They can do whatever they want with it. Yeah. But if I was a director laboring over my child, yeah, I'd want a heads up. By the way, BTW, yeah, uh, we're gonna also release it um, streaming. They must and you not can protest con- as much as you want. But yeah, they must not have considered it important. It's like, well, it's going into cinemas anyway. Why would I they guess? Care? So. I don't know. I just feel like. Denis Villeneuve should be given the opportunity to rebut. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, so that's not on. Uh, that's really not on. No. I, I would be pissed off. Yes. Yeah. But still, it is what it is. Okay. Right. Should we review Mank? Okay. We'll talk about it at least. We'll talk about Mank, yeah. Okay. What did you think of Mank? Is Mank wank? Is Mank wank? Is that like the this uh, feature? This yeah. Is, is Mank wank? Headline. Is Mank wank? Well, certainly not wank. Okay. It's, I can, That's I can say that, that then. <laughs> it's not wank. That would be harsh criticism. It would be. Uh, okay. Well, firstly, Mank needs a rewatch from me. Ooh. I say that knowing that it's not the film you finish and go, I'm going to rewatch that. <laughs> no. It's quite dense. You yes. Know? It's, uh, it's a film lover's film. Yeah. In every respect. Oh, it's yeah, yeah. about film, you know, this niche little Hollywood story. Um, about uh, Citizen Kane. Yeah, exactly. It's not about Citizen Kane, but it's like, yeah, it is a bit. Yeah, it's the, the kind of the backdrop for it is yeah. the making of Citizen Kane, the writing of it. Which is the, I think if you like, the popular best film of all time yeah. is The Godfather. Yeah. But the widely considered best film of all time is Citizen Kane. Yes. Right? Yeah. That in Vertigo? Is it? Yeah. Yeah, they're always at the top. Yeah. And then dep- depending on how wanky the critic is, Sometimes Tokyo Story. Oh, or, right. Uh, yeah, yeah. A film that's not in the English language, basically. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Uh, yes. So, Mank tells a story. Is Herman Mankiewicz? Yes. Uh, Herman, Herman J. Herman J. Mankiewicz. Wankiewicz. <laughs> <laughs> uh, writing uh, Citizen Kane. I, I think the story has been debunked a bunch. Uh, like, the story the film tells. Oh, okay. It's not accurate. I don't really care about that. That's not really doesn't factor into my opinion of it. Okay, it's just a it's just a story. Well, yeah, that is the story is the backdrop, isn't it? Yeah, it is sort of um, it's about him more than it's yeah. about what the premise is. Yes, um, it's about yeah him writing Citizen Kane and kind of being robbed of the credit and yeah that sort of thing. Black and white film. Yes, straight on Netflix. Yes, David Fincher. Yes. Those are the bullets. <laughs> yeah, what do you think of Mank? Um, not just a black and white film, but no. a, a retro... Yeah, a really black and white film. A really film. black yeah. and white film. Like, they do the title cards at the beginning. They have a traditional Hollywood score. Mm-hmm. The sound even has that kind of, like, crackly, yeah. 
echoey quality a lot of old films do. Mm-hmm. So it, even though it's it's 16 by 9 widescreen and it's clearly modern, yeah. it's very much styled like a traditional Hollywood picture. Yes. That's very much what they wanted to evoke. Yeah. I feel like there's a, there's a line in the film as well um, when the producer is sort of criticising Mankiewicz's approach to Citizen Kane. Mm-hmm. He's sort of talking about the, lo- the non-linear nature of the film and how it would be seen as confusing and... Yeah. Um, I think Mankiewicz says something along the lines of, you can't depict a person's entire life in two hours. You can only give the impression that you have. Right. And that's obviously supposed to be reflective of... Yes, like a meta commentary. Yeah, that's what the film is doing. Yeah. So I don't know whether that's them saying that we are trying to make this film in a similar fashion to Citizen Kane, Mm -hmm. or whether we are using... We're just using similar techniques. Yeah. Um, Well, the thing I've seen pretty much every critic do is compare it to Citizen Kane. Yeah. Is it as good as... Does it hold up? Well, you can't do that. No, I know. What the, fuck, that, what the fuck's point in that's doing the, that? That's what they do. It's because it's such an easy thing to do. Yeah. Um, That'd be like saying, oh, is... Well, actually, there's no disputing it, but I was going to say, like, oh, is the disaster artist as good as the room? Yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> but, like, whenever there's a film like this, that's what they do. Mm. Is the thing it's depicting as good... As know, the thing. As the thing. Yeah. Um... I mean, Citizen Kane, you know, there, there's a lot to admire about it, obviously. It's yeah. obviously a masterpiece. Yeah. It's of its time. You're not going to watch it. If, you, if you're a film lover, you're not going to watch it now and, and be blown away by it, frankly. Mm. You know, it's, it's, the, you sort of need to read about it to appreciate it. Yeah. Sort of I, I think, I think it pioneered yeah. a lot of techniques that nowadays we don't even think about. Yes. Like characters talking over each other. At the time, a the Citizen Kane. Yeah. At the yeah. time Citizen Kane came out these were like mind-blowing concepts yes um whereas now characters talking over each other it's a fairly natural yeah thing to happen in films yeah enjoying citizen kane is an intellectual experience it's not um a visceral one yeah so and you know and we are of our age and so we're probably just gonna like mank more than citizen kane because of that yeah you know i do like mank more than citizen kane. <laughs> okay it's not that doesn't say much about it either one really but um I liked it. You did like it. I did like it. I didn't love it. Is that why it warrants a rewatch? Yes. Okay. Because you want to love it or because you fear you haven't seen it, seen everything it has to offer yet? A bit of both. I mean, I, I certainly want to love it because David Fincher is, you know, mm. one of my favorite working I don't know. Did it, does this feel like a Fincher film to you? Yes and no. Yeah. There was I something mean, it's, about it's, it. In a sense, it's the most Fincher film ever made because his father wrote it. Yes. Yeah. Yes, that's very true. But yeah, I don't know. There was just something about it. Because what is... How do you identify a Fincher film, right? You you identify it by its sort of, its sort of professionalism. Yeah. Just how tightly controlled everything is. Yes. And this film is very controlled. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it feels a lot looser than previous Fincher films. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that's the script, probably. More it's probably the script, yeah. Um, I mean, I mean, Mankiewicz as a character is, is very kind of... He's a drunk mm-hmm. um, and a gambler and a, you know all this sort of stuff. Yeah. So he is a very flamboyant kind of all over the place sort of individual. Yeah. So I suppose the film has to loosen itself up a bit to keep up with him. Yeah. But I, yeah, I think that looseness and... I suppose the like the the way it's filmed made it feel less like a Fincher. Yeah, film. I mean it, it has kind of visual motifs and beats that remind you that it's David Fincher, mm. like fades to black and that sort of thing. Yeah, uh, but 
And I I don't know who the cinematographer is, but it has that Jeff Cronin West uh, House of Cards social network thing yeah. going for he's it. He's German. I think he's called Messerschmitt or something Messerschmitt. like that. Messerschmitt. Oh, yeah, yeah, no. Yeah, that sounds about Yeah, right. Eric Messerschmitt. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's a gorgeous film. Oh, yeah, stunning. And there's yeah. some really... Um, it's not just, oh, look, it's in black and white and it's very mm. crisp. Like, no, there's some genuinely fantastic cinematography yeah. going on. Which I suppose if you're making a film that at the very least um, is evoking Citizen Kane Mm -hmm. you have to bring your A-game oh yeah and they're definitely bringing their A-game they are bringing their A-game just to speculate it is pure speculation about why maybe maybe it feels looser than um, his earlier joints maybe because it was his father's script he feels more bound to kind of respect it it does he doesn't want to lose to too much it. the script yeah. yeah he wants to do the script so I mean if you if you have the social network DVD um, and you watch the extra the special features mm. and you see the meetings where they're going through the script it's literally line by line and yeah. going I don't buy that he would say this at this time yeah it is so kind of micromanaged in a way um but yeah, maybe he felt that he... I mean, he couldn't actually because his father has passed away. Yeah. So he couldn't sit down with the writer. It would have been a, a process of kind of self-editing. Mm. Uh, that could be part of the reason why. It could be. I mean, I was fearful that it wouldn't be as well written as his earlier... Because one of the unique things about David Fincher is that he's one of the most revered filmmakers, mm. but he's not a writer. No. He's just with, a director. With no ambitions to be a writer. No, I don't okay. think so. Yeah. I don't think he's ever written anything. No. Maybe. But that in and of itself is kind of impressive. But I was a bit afraid that it wouldn't be well written because it was his father mm-hmm. and his father passed away. He's like, right, he's, he's doing the script his father wrote. Mm. You know, th- there were some concerns about whether it would be of higher standard. Yeah. You know, uh, it's like when I think Daniel Day-Lewis is in a film directed by his wife and it's just rubbish. Oh, right. So it's because it was his wife. Yeah. And so you're you're afraid of nepotism is going to get in the way of Paul. Yes. But no, it's very well written. Oh, I, yes. <laughs> it is incredibly well it's written. It's very, very well written. The characters, it sort of has that, like, Sorkin, Fincher, professional... Like, what am I What am I trying to say? Yeah, it's, <laughs> I think, no, it's, it's professional people talking smartly to each other. Yes. Yeah. And so as a result of that, you do reach points where a lot of the characters sound the same. Yes, okay. There aren't many characters that have a distinct identity. They're more defined by, like, how they say what they say rather than what they're saying. They don't sound different, they just speak differently. Yes. But when the dialogue is as rich as this is, and as, like, clever as Mm. it is, that sort of doesn't matter. Like, a lack of distinction between the different characters doesn't matter when all of the characters sound this good. Yeah, I mean, watching Aaron Sorkin at work... It's just a concession you kind of make at the door. Mm. Is I don't really care that CJ sounds like Toby, sounds like Josh. Yeah. It's a musical. Yeah. And I'm just going to enjoy the music of it. Uh, yeah. And I think part of the reason I want to watch it again is because I think to love this film, you've really got to be interested in the story. You have to be into its subject matter. Yeah. And I kind of sort of am, right? But not fully. Okay. But another, so I was kind of watching it with that in mind and liking it. And then you got that climax scene, and that was so good. Mm. 
that it made me think, right, I need to re-experience this film now. And like, right. you know what I mean? Like, yeah. learn to love it earlier sort of thing. Okay. Because yeah, the climax of the film, it's not really a spoilery sort of film. Are you talking about the dinner scene? The dinner scene. Yes. Is brilliant. Yeah. It's so good. It's a drunk Mankiewicz just kind of uh, writing the film right out he's, loud. Yeah, he's pitching yeah. Citizen Kane to um, the studio. Yeah, but and- like... Yeah, sort of insulting the people by by their comparison to the characters. Well, that's that's about. sort of the point of it, isn't it? It's yeah. like like when you I think when you pitch people this film, you say like, mm. oh, it's about him trying to write Citizen Kane. Mm. The assumption would be that he doesn't know what to write. Yes, most like writers writing a film films, mm-hmm. they're about the writer struggling yeah. to find inspiration, or yeah. he's struggling how to articulate, or even struggling just to think of what he wants to say. No, yeah. no, no, no. This guy knows exactly what he wants to say. Oh, yeah. He is, like, insulting the people that he has spent his life with, <laughs> yes. basically. That's what Citizen Kane is. Yeah. And everyone knows that's exactly what he's doing. Mm-hmm. And that's where the difficulty lies. Yeah. Because a lot of people are rallying against Citizen Kane ever coming to be. And I, that's what that final scene is. It's him, like, pitching the characters and the people in the room that the, those characters are analogues of are sort of realising it in real time. And, it reminded me of... <laughs> So that's it's actually something I'm very wary of. The more I write, is I don't want to write something that say my parents will see and go, "He's based yeah that on us." And like, um, you're going to do that in some way or another, right? Mm. Uh, but you have to have like a healthy relationship with it. But when we were in university, someone in the year below had written a play that just completely slagged off his family. Oh, right. Made them look terrible and invited them all to come watch it. Oh. As like part of the, the final showcase. Oh, shit. And I just thought that is such, it's such bad taste, such a bad thing to do. Yeah. Like, and I know like part of the writer's kind of mental architecture is a petty child, is mm. I'm going to be cured now, actually. Yeah. And I, so I get the impulse, but you've got to like rise above that. <laughs> kind of go, yeah, I'm going to just write a monologue that yeah. says you're shit and then you're going to sit there and take it. Use your powers for good, dude. Exactly. You use, can, yeah, you, use look, your powers Look at for what good. you can do as a writer. Don't yeah. waste it on, you know. And you should get to an age where you kind of make peace with that personally and you don't feel that you have to do that anymore. Mm. I think a lot of writers start angry, right? When oh, you're yeah. a teenager and like, you, you basically write yourself as like a shy outsider. Yeah. And the world... The, the the arc of the film is the world understanding how great you really were all yes. along. Uh, and you just sort of grow out of that and, and you start to go, you know what, I have flaws. Maybe the character should have flaws. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, so that was such a juvenile thing to do. But I mean, it, it was you, script writing at university. Yeah. So. No, no, yeah, you, you, you were exactly right when you say the, like, the, the, the whole um, uh, fuel of a writer is, I will be heard now. Yeah. This is me. I finally gain the ability to be heard yeah I will say things now yes that is yeah exactly it but uh, yeah that's that's basically the uh, the climax of the film is him doing that in real time yeah uh, yeah I, that scene is just it's like one of the scenes of the year isn't it yes it's so good I mean is this a segue into Gary Oldman yeah because Gary so, Oldman plays uh, Herman J. W- uh, Wankowitz <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to close the blinds okay okay alright ignore the uh, ah well leave it in yeah, right. Nice bit of ASMR for... Yes, yeah, sure. keep talking about Gary Oldman. <laughs> well, he is the, the star of the film. He is. Herman J. Wankowitz. Wankowitz. Yes. Um, he's pretty good, isn't he? He is rather good. Yes. Again, I was sort of not as worried, but... Because Gary Oldman does this thing now where he started his career 
giving great performances and you know things like um Sid and Nancy and mm. you know uh, and then he made Nil by Mouth and then he became Hollywood's go-to villain mm. and now he sort of go he, well, he's a jobbing actor so he goes between doing things like um the darkest hour yeah to just random uh, straight to DVD what was that? action movie. Yeah, what was that one that we saw? Not you and me, my family now. Yeah. Um, I think it was on Netflix where he's like a... It's like a girl who's on a bike. She's the courier, I think it was called. Right. Where he's like the villain. Oh, yeah, that. the courier. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He is, yes, he's in that, isn't he? Yeah. It's like, <laughs> yeah. really? After Darkest Hour and you won an Oscar, you've gone to this. He's someone you bring in to, like, shout in a few scenes in an action yeah. film. Yeah, exactly. I talking about Oldman. I really like his. I like him as Jim Gordon because I think when he was cast as Jim Gordon, it mm. was such a counterintuitive thing to do mm. to get the showiest actor on the planet. Yeah, and get him to do um, what he would then go on to do in Tinker Tailor. Yeah, essentially a guy. Yeah, like he's the heart of those films in a way, isn't he? Um, yeah. So I was a bit worried that he just wasn't going to bring his A game. Mm. But then I realised he was working for David Fincher. Yeah, who doesn't bring their A-game <laughs> yeah. when they work for David Fincher? <laughs> who would have Fucking, less? what's his name? Terry, who's the terrible filmmaker? He does, like, shit. Like, Tyler Perry. Tyler Perry. Yeah. Tyler Perry brought his A-game. <laughs> for Gone Girl, yeah. Yeah. Yes. So I sh- that I realised how stupid it was to worry about that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, he's, he's brilliant. Yeah. He's brilliant. Absolutely. And again, that final... If you made one film in your life and it was Mank, as an actor, mm. and then you passed away... That final dinner scene is all that need be on your showreel. Yeah, I think on like if, a, if you memoriam. could put a scene on a tombstone. Yes, that's what you'd put on yes, it. Yes, exactly. Yeah, he's good. <laughs> he's very, very good. Amanda Seyfried is good, but I don't understand the buzz she's getting. I'll be honest. Well, she's in it very, very little. Yeah, she's barely in it. Yeah, because she's the second in the casting, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, like she's in it almost as little as the guy who plays Orson Welles. Yeah. Which is... The actor, it's Tom something. Do we know? Is he a person? I've seen him in a couple of things. Okay. Um, I think maybe he plays Cormoran Strike in the J.K. Rowling TV series. Oh, I have no idea. I, I don't know. I, could I have no idea what you're on about right now. <laughs> okay. Um, like, he's pretty good as Orson Welles. I, I, yeah. I feel like his voice is better than his appearance. I agree. When yeah. you when you hear him, you're like, oh, that's Orson Welles. Yeah. And then you see him and you're like, oh, okay. But like Amanda Seyfried is currently like topping a lot of lists of favorite to win supporting actress. I actually think Lily Collins is more deserving. Um, is that his secretary? Yeah, yeah. Man- Mankiewicz's secretary. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. she has something to do, yeah. mainly. Yes. Whereas Seyfried doesn't. I just think it's the kind of performance the Academy likes rewarding. A real person. Yeah. You know. Uh, in a very worthy film. And also it's not, um, it's distant enough from Amanda Seyfried for you to sort of go, oh, it's like a transformative. Yeah. It's not massively dis- no, different. No. It's not like, you know, Sling Blade or anything. No. <laughs> um, yes, no. But it's sort of enough to go like, oh, that Amanda Seyfried, she can she can act. Well, I just think it's just her time to get her first nomination, isn't it, realistically? Mm-hmm. Uh, she's put in a few good performances, but like they just fell under the radar of yeah. award. And this is one that they can go, oh, she's in a David Fincher film. Yeah, slap her with a, with a nom. Slap her. <laughs> slap her with a nom. What are you doing there? <laughs> Why are you in a David Fincher film? <laughs> Who do you think you are? Uh, You're at least five years before you've been in a David uh, film. David film. <laughs> uh, Charles Dance is really good. Yes, but again, yeah. he's barely in barely it. In like it. three scenes. I yeah, think. it's all about Mank, isn't it? Yeah, genuinely. It's all about him. Uh, 
yeah, I mean, what else is there to say? It's a very well put together film. Yes. It just doesn't quite hit the level of unmissably amazing. And why, to the best of your, um, to the best of your opinion is a weird <laughs> phrase. I don't know why yeah. I went in that direction. As far as you think, that also doesn't really work. <laughs> what is, why do you so think? Are we going to go through everything that doesn't work? <laughs> Uh, for that why course. do you think yes that the film is not um, unmissably great A because it's very specific like it has universal themes obviously mm. but it's it's about like a film lovers it appeals to film lovers who are into inside the Hollywood stories yeah that's the first thing secondly because of that so one of the things I've been thinking about recently is a kind of disdain for making something entertaining. <laughs> okay. Whether that be making your art political mm. or making it very dry and even ver- like very autoristic, Oscar-y indie films still need to entertain you when you're watching it. Okay. And I think Mank is very well made, very well written, very smart. Mm. It's not massively entertaining. No. I think that's the thing that stops it being... The Social Network is a film about people in rooms talking. Um, about the birth of a company we don't like. You yeah. Know, it, but it's entertaining. Yes. Mank isn't really. No. Okay, yeah. Would you agree with but that? Yeah, that sounds like a solid assessment. Yeah. But I would recommend it. If you're into films even vaguely, watch Mank. Oh, yeah. And yeah. it's not as obtuse as, like, um, I'm thinking of ending things. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's no. not. It's not like oh, that's a film for film. People. <laughs> it's not impenetrable. Yeah. No. No. Yeah. It, it's just yeah. It's dense and it's um yeah. As you said, it's yeah. not like entertaining. But that is not to say that it's not yeah worthy of consumption. No. It's it's got a hard shell like surface, mm. but it's not inaccessible. It's not impenetrable. Yeah. Like I'm thinking of ending things. Yeah. All right. That's our review of Mank then. I guess. Okay. Yay. I've got a Sam's Lexicorner for you. Finally! <laughs> You've been asking me to do one for a while. <laughs> the, the triumphant return. Well, it's because I've been like... I, I the, the file has just been sitting in my editing software, going completely unused for yeah. so many episodes now. Okay. Well, I've got one for you. Okay. Here's a Sam's Lexicorner. Samuel. Words. Phrases. Sam's lexicon. Well, this is based on an observation and a conversation. Okay. We have been watching Homeland, mm. and we recently watched season four. We did. And you asked me as we were watching it, what is it about the fourth season of... Season four of TV shows, why are they good? What is <laughs> yes. this weird commonality? What? Which ones did we identify? Well, this thing. So I, th- I was thinking about that. Mm. Thinking, is it just a freak thing? It's not. There, there's something happening with the season four thing. Okay. Because um, I've recently consumed or reconsumed a bunch of seasons four of things. Okay. And something's going on. Okay. With, it's obviously not universal, but here are just some examples. Okay. Some are, obviously this is all um, subjective, mm. but I think some are like, most people would agree this is the best season and some I would just say the best seasons. Okay. Breaking Bad. Yep. Dexter. Mm-hmm. Homeland. Mm. Lost. Yeah. Mr. Robot. Yes. 
The Shield. Yeah. I know we disagree on that, but The Wire. Yeah. Game of Thrones. Yeah. Mad Men. Okay. The Americans. I see. And Peep Show. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so there's like, a lot going on there. Yeah, like shows that are considered amongst the greatest mm. as well. Not just like any show. Yes. Game of Thrones, The Wire, The Shield, Breaking yeah. Bad, you know, the fourth season. Yeah. Obviously, before it's pointed out, yes. community is not in there because community, community is, not is in the there. opposite end. Yes. But yes, there are, yeah. There's enough of a, yeah, of a trend there. So I'm going to call that phenomenon the August Autumn. Oh, you you you, you had one there. What? Phenomenon. <laughs> phenomenon. Yeah, I suppose. Yeah you, yeah, you could go with phenomenon, but I don't like puns. Well, you got to get over that, Sam. <laughs> I'll tell you why the August autumn. Okay. Other than the alliteration of it, I like the imagery of an August autumn. Okay. Because right, technically, autumn is the fourth season. Can we start the year with winter? Right? Okay. All right. So it's technically the fourth season. So there's that. Yeah. Um, the autumn I associate with kind of dignity for some reason. Okay. Even though it's fall, it's like something that's seasoned. You're in your autumnal yeah. years. Season. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, you know what I mean? That you're 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 not on a death's door, but you're wise now. Mm. And August, you know, it just means great, basically. But you, it's the month as well, so you have the kind of sweltery thing of that. So it's something that is both dignified but vital. Okay. It's a hot autumn. So I like that about it because it especially applies to prestigious television, right? Okay. And you can also take that to mean that it's both stimulating and entertaining. To bring it back to that. Um, it's intellectually stimulating and you actually enjoy it at the same time. Yeah. It's the silver fox of television. Okay. The August autumn. August autumn. We, we, as part of that conversation, we did yeah. sort of discuss why we thought season fours in general. Well, that's the thing. It's, it's a phenomenon, but I think they all have different reasons why they're the best seasons. Yeah. Not just internally, not just, oh, you know, because the writing or whatever the outside uh, conditions are different for each show okay some shows are just for whatever reason it was a really good season mm. um, but Homeland was in a unique position because they sort of wrapped up their principal storyline right yeah and then they could have done anything mm. and so it was a case of the first album is great thing yeah you know and then you've got not Mr. Robot Lost it was the first season where they knew that they when they were ending, mm. you know. So I th- I feel like there's a different explanation for each of them. Okay, the things like the wire, it just is the best season, you know. Yeah, because it doesn't even feel like there's a consistent um, parallel. Right. I suppose the draw, yeah. like you've got seasons like the Shield, season mm-hmm. four of the Shield, and season four of Homeland, where they're a sort of a departure from what the show has right. been doing up until this point. Like you pointed out before, season four of The Shield is sort of a isolated unit. That's there, that's one of the things a lot of these have in common. Yeah, they are self-contained units. There are things that happen within those seasons that are referenced or carried forward through the rest of the yeah. show. But you could just watch season four of The Shield and be basically fine. Like you wouldn't be yeah. lost. That story exists purely within that season similar thing with Homeland I know you said that season 8 is sort of a sequel to it yeah. but season 4 of Homeland that has a story that begins and sort of resolves within and, yeah, that season it's done but then you've got uh, shows like Dexter where season 4 is conceptually it's self-contained yes. but that is 
like straight up continuation of that show. It feels yeah. like the almost like the culmination mm-hmm. of what the show has been doing with like each of the villains in the season and where Dexter's story has been going. Mm-hmm. Then you got like Mr. Robot, which is a literal like resolution. Yes. Uh, so another thing they have in common, they kind of in different ways embody the beginning of the end. Sometimes the actual end, like with Mr. Robot. Yeah. But they're the, the step toward conclusion. And they usually find the characters at their lowest points. Okay. So Breaking Bad, it's him losing for an entire season. Yeah. Dexter, I mean, he loses at the very end. It's the biggest loss. Oh, yeah. Um, Homeland, the whole design of the season is this exercise in this is how America loses. Yeah. They lose the whole season. They keep losing. Yeah. And sometimes that's just in and of itself a nice little parable or kind of commentary on how the wire for instance how the system fails people Mm. or sometimes it's in the case of Breaking Bad things have to be this shit so the characters can surmount it yeah Uh, yeah so they do have things in common uh, but it does they do seem different enough that I couldn't pinpoint it and define it exactly. Okay. But there is something going on with the fourth season. So is our advice to um, prospective writers, write your fourth season first? Exactly. <laughs> write your fourth season first. Guarantee it'll be a good season. Yeah. Well, that's because I was really trying to think about it. The first season, again, it can be brilliant or not, but you're finding yourself. The second season is PEA, the Perceived Eminence Application. Yeah. What do we think people liked about it? Yeah. And in the case of Mr. Robot, I would say... It's not a bad season at all, but I think the worst thing that Mr. Robot did is because of the perceived eminence application. Yes. People like the big twist, so we'll do the big twist as well in season two. Yeah. Uh, So you have that with the second season, and then, you know, hopefully you write yourself for the third season. Yeah. So realistically, the third season should be the best seasons of shows because they know what's good about them now and they know what's bad about them. Yes. But that's not the case. That's not the case, no. (laughs) So, yeah. Well, it's sort of... um, I suppose by the time you get to the fourth season, you're sort of done with experimenting. Yeah. Like, you've got got the first season, then you've got the second season. You've been through this just now. Mm -hmm. But, like, I think the general um, uh, diagram people draw is you've got the first thing, Mm -hmm. then you expand for the second thing, and then you sort of refocus for the third thing. Yes. The second thing has is where your experimentation takes place. You cut a lot of that for the third one. Mm-hmm. And then by the time you get to the fourth thing, yeah. you know, right, this works, this doesn't. Yeah. You know what to keep, you know what to Yeah, lose. you know the formula, let's fuck with it. Yeah. Even, like, you say... Yeah, that as well. Yeah. Like, yeah. okay, we've established, we yeah. have a pre-established template, so we know where to fuck with things a bit. Yeah. So it feels like a subversion rather than we're doing it wrong. Yeah. Again, just to tie it back in with the August autumn, it just, it's wisdom. You're mm. wise by your fourth season. Yeah. You're not just clever, you're wise now. You know, ideally. Yeah. Um, yeah. So there you go. That's the, the August autumn. Okay. Samuel. Words. Phrases. Sam's lexicon. You got anything else? Um, I do have a question. Ask me. I was sort of thinking about it when I was in work the other day. Um, if it's not in the way that she holds him, mm. and it's not in the way that she she says that she cares, yes, it's not in the way that she's been treating his friends, yeah, nor in the way that she stays till the end, yes, or even in the way that she looks or the things that she says that she'll do, yes. In what way is it in? 
Um, I think it's merely a matter of nature taking its course. Okay. Because love is not always on time. It's not. No, no, no. Um... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I know. I, I guess the whole the point of it, right, is that it's not nothing that you're doing, really. It's just not, I'm not there. It's not you, it's me. Yeah, basically. Okay. Yeah. But, like, it's, stick around, because yeah. I, might, I might feel it one day. Yeah. Yeah, hold the you line. Might, you might wear me down eventually. Yeah. Who knows? Maybe it's kind of nonsense lyrics. Maybe it doesn't well, really mean anything. That's the thing. Like, I think all of the verses follow that format, where it's, it's, it's not, not in, in this way. way, it's not in this way, it's yeah. not in that way. Um, and then the chorus obviously is hold the line. Yeah. Which would imply um, a confident theme. Yeah, Like this song really is about, it's like the Shania Twain song. Um, where it's like, oh, you think you're Brad Pitt. That don't impress me much. And it's all about like um, the things this guy does that just doesn't impress this woman. Okay. <laughs> but that sort of follows a similar structure where every line is uh, phrased in a certain way. Yeah. Or Alanis Morissette, who I think with ironic which is famous because of how ardently she commits to that theme and is so wrong. Right. That's why that song is so famous. Okay. Nothing she says is actually ironic. I see. Um, so yeah, it would the, the confidence of the lyrics would imply, the consistency of the lyrics would imply a confidence. But I don't really know what they're saying. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's literally just, um, like nothing's, yeah, nothing's wrong with you. Yeah. And then in the chorus, he's saying, stick with it though. Yeah. It's kind of cruel in a way, isn't it? <laughs> it's like I don't feel the same, but yeah. you keep doing you, and then maybe we'll maybe yeah. Well, it's unfair. Something. It's an unfair request, I think. Yeah, isn't it? like at least if he hadn't said, "I don't feel it." Yeah, there's that that ambiguity can sort of keep you going. It's like, yeah. oh, maybe he does feel the same way, and if I keep at it, yeah, things will eventually illuminate themselves. But yeah. no, he's just like no, yeah, and then he says, "But you know." stick around yeah yeah I don't think it's fair would you if you were pursuing someone romantically yes. and they said Look, I, I don't feel it at all mm. but I might one day so if you just want to keep doing this that's cool with me I've been in that position oh you have <laughs> <laughs> um, well now that you have yeah, that now, experience no, now I've had the experience no yeah is the answer but yeah yeah I mean it's also it's almost a kind of self-criticism isn't it the, the, the lyrics because it's not in the way you've been treating my friends it's not in the way that you stayed to the end it's like she's so good yeah that he's almost like lambasting himself yeah for not being in love with her yes it's not in the way you know it's not because you're the best person I've ever met it's not that you're <laughs> fucking perfect you know what I mean yeah it's yeah or is it sarcastic well no because why would it, how would it be sarcastic she's either done those things or she hasn't well, if it was like... She's either stayed till the end or she went home before the end. Why, why don't you love me? Oh, well, it's certainly not because of the way you slag my friends off. It's not because of this. It's okay. not because of that. It's probably not that. But... but it, okay, so if that was the case, yeah. if she was slagging off his friends and if she was leaving early and... Yeah, yeah. And she was a fucking... Uh, Cunt. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say like monger, but that's not a word. A monger. Like, she's hideous. Manta, oh, a manta. Yeah. yeah, she's a manta. Yeah. If she is like a manta, yeah, or a um, mongoloid, or a mongoloid, best word in the English language. <laughs> um, would he then go on to say, "But hold the line, hold the line, love, love is always, always again," unless it's like a because again, that, I feel like that's very clearly saying 
it might still yeah. happen. Or it's cynical or condescending. Okay. Like, oh, you, you do this, you do this thing that I hate. You you treat my friends like shit. But come on, princess, just keep keep holding out, and I might love you one day. Okay. You know what I mean? It does ruin the song a bit if it's all <laughs> seeing through that lens of if it's all sarcasm. It's all sarcasm, yeah. That's the beauty of lyrics, isn't it? Because you know, even ballads can mean the opposite. Of, of what the lyrics would suggest. Okay. You know what I mean? Because you could decide that any song is sarcastic or ironic. Yeah. That's what's kind of interesting about them. Like, how do you detect that in a lyric? Mm. Whether someone's being sarcastic or not? That's really interesting, actually. Yeah. How do you detect someone's intent? I you take it all at face value? Yeah, I suppose you can't, because obviously it wouldn't be sung in a sarcastic way. Yeah. Because that you, doesn't lend itself to good singing. Yeah, yeah, you can't, yeah, you can't intone it with sarcasm. No. Um, but you, do, but I feel like I, I, yeah, there are songs I've listened to, songs I love, where I know their intent is sarcasm or irony. And how do you know that? Is- I don't know. Okay. I honestly don't know. Maybe it's just, well, the way it's written. I mean, it's, to a certain degree, it would be the reputation of the band. Wasn't it? Obviously, yeah. there'd be some interviews where they'll outright say, oh, this song is sarcastic, or yeah, this song yeah. is about this or that. But if you're not keeping abreast of that, Yes. Like, if you were to listen to a Smith song, mm. like, how much do you trust the sincerity of... Like, do you That's just take it. it at face value or do you assume that there's something else going on? I think there's a leap of faith. I mean, it's the same when you watch Noel Gallagher be incredibly arrogant or whatever mm. and just kind of inferring that it's done with a wink okay, rather than being sincere. You Is that I mean? you, though? Because I feel like most people would look at no, Noel that- and even Liam and be like, oh, he's... he's yeah, oh, gen- Liam, unambiguously. Yeah, he's a no. genuine twat. Yeah, yeah. I mean... It- if you have a relationship with the music, but like Morrissey, his whole personality in interviews, mm. it's not real. You know, it, it's, he's kind of playing a game in a way. Okay. And I suppose it's that same faith is you just kind of uh, transmute it to the lyrics. Mm. Do I think he's kind of being... Like, I think the Smiths are really funny. Now, the Smiths have a reputation... Yeah, for you've being, said that before. Yeah. yeah. Um, and they obviously have a reputation for being one of the most melancholy... Mm cut myself music yeah. you know, uh, bands out there but yeah I think a lot of it is, is intended to be kind of so over dramatic and kind of melodramatic yeah that it sort of speaks to how you feel when you're a teenage boy okay because the Smith is for teenage teenagers really right. okay um, what's the one that you pointed out it's so overwrought and over florid that and you know the fact he's on stage with flowers and stuff yeah it's like it's just like yeah, it's kind of a, a construct in a way. Yeah, it's I a, feel like it's an, an example you gave to me before. As well. Is it a double-decker bus? If a double-decker yeah, bus crashes goes- into us to die by your side, yeah. you know, the pleasure, the privilege is mine. Yeah, that's like so over the top. But also, like you, I think you said like before, the specificity of it, like the double-decker bus. Yeah, a 10-ton truck crashes into us. Yeah. Yeah, that's what makes it funny. Mm. Is, yeah, exactly, that. Um, as for Toto... yeah. Do we do we believe they would be they're sarcastic? Not that, they're kind of stadium pleasing. Yeah, middle of the road. I really like Toto, but they are a middle of the road band. They're not doing anything. Well, there's, amazing. There's those two songs really. Three. Oh, three. What's the third one? Rosanna is the third. Oh one. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's those three yeah. that everyone listens to, and then oh, I guess they have other songs as well. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, that's a, that's a that's a fair point about like how do you detect sarcasm in a song? Because song like musicals are different, mm. but songs just songs mm. they're sort of sung without emotion. Yeah, right. There yeah, are, there aren't many. You you get like some songs where um, passion and stuff. But yeah, yeah. Like, and was it Daddy? 
like corn or yeah it is, but like that's because like, it's literally screaming yeah know? yeah yeah exactly but for the most part songs are just sung very matter-of-factly yeah they'll they'll imbue it with like certain techniques like yeah. you have a lot of like Mar- mariah carey and beyonce will they'll do like high trills and all that stuff to mm. make it sound impressive yeah but it's not it has no connection to the lyrics it's not conveying anything it's not informing you of anything yeah that the song is saying or the tone or the theme of the song it's just oh look at me how look how impressive this is yeah obviously i've written lyrics to songs i feel like i've consciously done that I feel like i've written lyrics that were meant to be not quite taken literally okay they were meant to be perceived as ironic or over the top mm. like can i be your minion be your hound stuff like that, that yeah. was, i'm not really saying you know what i mean mm. so it's uh it is interesting but I, I, that's what I like in a musician, I think. I like the ambiguity of... I don't know whether this is ironic or not. Okay. I don't know whether their um, persona is ironic or not. I see. They're, they're the two big ones, like Morrissey and Noel Gallagher, where I think it, it's done with a wink. Okay. I, I can't quite take it fully seriously. Okay. Um, okay. Does that answer your question? Sure. <laughs> we go on to the main feature then oh god knows how long this is gonna go on for uh, we'll be we'll be pithy we'll be concise will, will we yeah we will we will our our nine hour podcast that was only supposed <laughs> to be like a, a quick yeah, i know aside well okay so the benefit is that we've talked about probably most of these already yeah let's let's introduce yeah. what it is we're sort of doing yes it's basically a top 10 of the year yes but rather than just doing our top 10 films mm-hmm. or top 10 shows or top 10 whatever yeah um, your it's your fault. You decided to do this. <laughs> your um, suggestion was we just roll them up into a single list. Yes. So our top ten anything basically. Basically, yeah. Yeah, top ten like films, TVs, games, whatever. Let's just put it all in the same list. Things we consumed. Yes. Yes. For that weren't food. Convenience. Um, for difference. For okay. variety, really. Okay. Um, I just didn't want to. Obviously, this is the basically this is the film and television podcast. Yeah. And that's, I like that, obviously. That's my life, basically. Mm. But yeah, just throw in a bit of, instead of just doing, oh, it's this film and this film, let's spice it up a little bit. Okay. I suppose that has the added benefit of, like, you and I are still operating on different um, release schedules. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, my top 10 of the year won't be completed until the Oscars. Yes. Because that's, that's what I use as my cutoff. Yeah. Because there's a bunch of films that have been released in America that we're not going to see for a while. Yeah. So... Then again, with this year, I think a lot of it's online anyway, isn't it? This year, mostly, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so the the, the caveat is that first, that we have slightly different schedules. Yes. Um, I go by the UK release date for films. Yeah. That only matters with one, anyway, and you know what it is. Yes. Um, but, yeah, so we've included the films, television show. Well, th- this is what was allowed. Okay. Films, TV shows, yeah. video games, mm. books. Right. Albums, mm. podcast episodes. That's it, right? We're keeping keeping it nice and broad yeah. there. Yeah. I mean, most of them don't apply to us. No. I, I don't play video games. You do. Neither of us listen to new music. No. And I haven't read a really good book from this year. Okay. I've read good books, but the one I'm reading at the moment, which I would have loved to have included, is from last year. Right. 
Uh, I've noticed that when making this list, I've noticed just how much I've consumed this year that wasn't from this year. Oh, yeah. It's like, oh, I can include... Oh, it's not eligible. Yeah, because well, we keep lists of all the films we watched and stuff like that. And I look at it and it's such a mammoth thing. Yeah. I think that's maybe accounts for like a quarter of the stuff <laughs> I've, I've consumed. I have, yeah. I have my own sort of mini caveat as well when it comes to games, because mm-hmm. uh, I do play games. But I think, I've again, I've said before on a previous episode, mm-hmm. my sort of policy quote unquote I don't buy games new yeah I mean games are expensive anyway mm-hmm. so a price drop could never hurt but I always like to I've been burned enough times that I like to you let it marinate uh, yeah I like to see yeah. how the game holds up over time like get that- past the initial reaction let's see if it actually sticks around well growing up I, I have exactly the same relationship with television now right. which is I will not buy a season of television even if it's a fantastic season of television mm. I won't buy it until the show is over right because I've been burned too many times yeah because House of Cards up. happened and Orange is the New Black happened and you know yeah uh, no wait till unless it's like a self-contained season mm. um, I've also become adept at uh, mentally cutting off t- so House of Cards I used to own the first four seasons I think mm. uh, the first two are brilliant and then it gets not very good but I was buying the show so yeah. and then by the end it was terrible right. so I kind of got out at a good time Yeah, but so I got rid of the DVDs but um, something compelled me to go back to it and I've re-bought the first two seasons right. in okay. my head it ends after season two I see. as far okay. as I'm concerned now uh, yeah and also I've learned that well, we both learned that you can't look forward to anything. Yeah. that it's going to be bad. Yes, exactly. So... But the problem yeah. with the games as well, though, is that there are games that have kind of stuck around, mm-hmm. but I haven't played them, so it feels right. dishonest to include them. Okay. It's like Crash 4, for example. Mm-hmm. I'm probably going to really enjoy Crash 4, but I haven't played it yet. Yeah, I've played it yet. And I'm not, probably not going to be playing it until the year is over anyway, so... Yeah. Like, games like that, games like Crash 4, Bullets Per Minute, Hades, No Straight mm-hmm. Roads, all games that... I really like the look of and I think that I would really enjoy mm-hmm. But and I've consumed like I've like listened to the music I've watched them online I've seen mm-hmm. playthroughs but because I haven't physically played them it feels wrong to include them yeah that's fair enough yeah the other caveat is that there are also films and TV shows from this year that I want to watch yeah that we haven't seen yet so this is basically a for now top <laughs> 10 of the year so now that we've um, completely like devalued this well, list. Well, thing, it's it's not inaccurate or dishonest because it is things that we've seen. Yeah, T- top ten things that we've consumed, and it is if we things- haven't consumed it. It obviously can't be considered. Yes, yeah, <laughs> so- and it is things we like as well. Yeah, oh yeah, I would be happy if this was the list. All oh, right, okay. So, do you want to do your number ten? Oh, I'm doing my number ten. Am I? Yeah. Oh God. <laughs> were, were we supposed to be ranking these properly? Sort of. Oh, okay. Well, your number one should be your number one. Other than that, yeah, let's leave it loose. Okay. Well, my number ten is the social dilemma. Okay. Which you sort of alluded to briefly. Yeah. Earlier on, um, I think this is something that we were going to talk about on a podcast. I think we did talk about it, and then I think that episode got lost or something. Yeah, that was one of the episodes where yeah. we we tried to improve yeah. our podcasting techniques. Yes, and. Failed. Technology went no, and yeah, and then Eddie was after the fact and said, "Don't talk about it because I've seen it now, so yeah. we'll talk about it." Yeah, and I just never got round. Yeah, to it. never got to fruition. Yeah. And then I saw it independently as yes. well because both of you were saying how good it was, so I yeah. watched it. Um, you liked it then? I did like it. Yes, yes, uh, yeah. It's certainly a, a wake up call. Isn't oh it? yeah, 
it's it's one of those um i mean like my thing with documentaries i bring this up every time but mm-hmm. my question is always is it a good documentary or is it good because of its subject matter yeah this is a good documentary yes just in and of itself the, they bring a lot of people they bring in a lot of people who do pieces the camera and they sort of like whether it to be to, whether it be to inform you about mm-hmm. um the way that like social media operates or whether it's just testimonials as to mm-hmm. what they think the problems are like all of those felt relevant and well placed they didn't feel like they were trying to fill time yeah it felt like everyone had a good perspective mm-hmm. a perspective worth including yeah um they do what a lot of do- documentaries seem to be doing as well now where they kind of include like one or two animated sequences yeah I feel like that's becoming like a weird, um, weird trend, yeah. trend in documentaries to sort of like, uh, yeah, whether, whether, when they're talking about like a certain uh, process, mm-hmm. like a sort of whether it's just like an abstract idea that's being put to animation. Yeah. Or I, I can't quite remember what the animation is depicting. Well, I mean, and they do the same with live action in this, right? With... Um What's the actor? Vin- Vincent Carthizer. Oh, yeah, there's a weird... Yeah. yeah, there's sort of like a weird um, storyline that's sort of playing alongside the documentary yeah. where you've got this uh, kid who is on his phone mm-hmm. all the time and as he's sort of engaging with social media, you sort of cut to people inside his head yeah. who are kind of... Um, and like the, the nerve center sort of thing. Yeah, like they're kind of... Deciding what he the, sees. Yeah, they're yeah. deciding what he sees yeah. and they're sort of figuring out ways to keep him engaged. And yeah. They've got this really neat visual where as um, they're sort of gaining him, like his attention more and more and more, mm-hmm. there's sort of like a a wireframe rendition of him that's becoming more and more realistic. Yes. To the point where he's basically trapped inside this yeah. zone. And yeah, like good little visuals like that that sort of carry the story through. And There's that great moment as well where Vincent Carthizer says to one of his doubles, are we, are we ever stopped to think if this is good for him? Yeah. And then just silence falls. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah to basically, um, to summarize it, The Social yeah. Dilemma is a documentary about social media. Yes. It's the world of social media and how that operates. Mm-hmm. You've alluded to it multiple times, including in this episode, where they, you're yeah. sort of talking about one of the things that they say in that documentary is um, social media is becoming so fractured mm-hmm. that society is becoming fractured as a result. Yeah. So people are just not reading the same information. Mm-hmm. They're not um, existing within the same spheres. So when people are flying apart and they're not understanding why, it's because they're operating with completely different information. Yeah, there's no centralized information. Yeah, and I, there's a lot of things in this documentary that... I mean, it's informative, definitely. Mm-hmm. You come away with a different perspective. But I think there's a lot of stuff in this documentary that whereas it might not be... Like, in retrospect, it might seem obvious. Mm-hmm. There's something about seeing it being, like, explained to you. Yes. Or seeing it being stated as, this is a thing that's happening. Yeah. That does make you go, oh, shit. Yeah, it well, is a bit like oh god, that's that's kind of scary. Yeah, not only is it a byproduct of social media, but kind of hostile ignorance. The companies have a vested interest in sustaining. Yes, that's the worst. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the few films that you can sincerely say life changing. Yeah, about yeah, because when people say that, it usually just means like the Nolan thing. You just liked it then, did you? Yeah, you liked it a lot. Um this genuinely has the capacity to change your life if you watch it yeah it just sort of it will you will pay attention it's like when someone points out like a tick like a the a tick that you do it's like oh you keep moving your hands a lot when you talk or you become hyper aware of it yes like after watching this you become hyper aware of 
how you use social media and how yeah kind of I guess dependent you are on it well a couple of things I wasn't on my list but this is your list <laughs> um, that and something on my list like the reason that it's there and it would be the same with a social dilemma is that it made me less angry it actually served to make me less angry okay and, uh, with the social dilemma I walked away A with you know a kind of bleak view of things but also yeah. I'm when I'm having conversations with people who don't know basic information I'm not going to get angry about it anymore yeah it's like oh you, yeah. you are just me and you are just in different places yeah you're just in a different yeah exactly you were taught something different yeah uh, so it genuinely helped with that yeah um, yeah we recommend the social yeah definitely yeah okay my number 10 is Sincerely Louis C.K. Ah, right. Okay. Is that on yours? It is. Okay, well, we we'll wait it? for it, shall okay. we? Okay. What's your number nine? My number nine is Mank. Oh, okay. All yeah. right. Well, we don't need to talk about that, do we? No, we've already <laughs> talked no. about it. Um, I mean, this year for film, I don't have my exact, like, films of the year list in front of me. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like there's been a lot of middle-of-the-road stuff this year. Yep. There aren't many films this year that I love. Yeah. This is not me saying, oh, I don't like Mank, but I had to put something on here. Yeah, yeah. This is me saying that in a better year, I think Mank would be a lot lower down my list. Because I it's, concur. There are only two films I love this year. Yeah, yeah. This is definitely a film that you respect more than you love. Yep. For reasons you've already explained. Like, mm-hmm. it's not entertaining. Yeah. But it, it's very well done. It's just not entertaining. Yeah. Um, and it might just be that, like, I'm fresh on the heels of seeing Mank. Mm-hmm. But no, I think it's definitely worthy of being in a top 10 yeah well one of one of the good things about it is again growing wisdom as, as we age but as i've said before if i like something instantly it really has the capacity to burn out yeah and mank the more i think about it the more i like it after the fact okay that's a brilliant sign that it's going to hold up really well yeah yeah uh so yeah no i agree okay it's uh Maybe we'll revisit it at some point if I watch it again. And, okay. Uh, okay. My number nine is an episode of a TV show. Oh, you, no, I didn't know you could do no, that. This is the exception, and you'll know why. Okay. Uh, Talking Heads, the Alan Bennett okay. All right. scripted um, monologues. I see. So, yeah, they, they were made for TV in the 90s, and I really I love Alan Bennett's writing. Hmm. And I really love Talking Heads. Uh, playing Sandwiches is my favorite one. Okay. Um, but they remade it this year in lockdown conditions mm-hmm. as like a treat, a little treat for the audience. Um, most of them are not as good as the original monologues. Okay. Uh, partly probably because of for time's sake. Mm. There are a lot of little tiny mistakes or kind of uh, bungling lines or nothing overt mm. but you can tell there probably weren't many takes okay they rehearsed 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 and then just filmed it right? yeah um but there were two new episodes uh newly scripted episodes for this run uh and the one that i there's my number nine is called an ordinary woman okay and that was it's sarah lancashire playing a woman who falls in love with her own son oh okay it's weird oh it was a hell of a treat oh yeah it's, <laughs> treat for the well, it's Alan Bennett's writing isn't it yeah um, her performance is the best it's pitch perfect there are no flubs and it's just unpredictable and I you know the whole thing was the whole uh, re-issue 
was unpredictable, but I didn't expect it to be that good. Okay. And about such a weird, unique, social, mm. um, well, domestic situation. Uh, if you watch nothing else from that, watch An Ordinary Woman um, by Alan Bennett. Okay. Okay, what's your number eight? Uh, my number eight is Sincerely Louis C.K. Okay, let's talk about we it. We can now. talk about it now. Um, we have talked about it in a prior previous Yes, I think podcast. it was episode 21 when okay. we talked about it. So a little while back. Should we maybe put that in the um, in the blurb? What? We'll redirect them to the episode where we talked about it. Yeah. Yeah, if if that works. I'm not promising that. Okay. So you can you <laughs> cut that if we don't do it. Okay. But uh, yes. yes. Um, sincerely, Louis C.K. was Louis C.K.'s first stand-up special. Mm-hmm. Uh, after his whole like kerfuffle, Me Too, yeah. After all of that happened, after all of that, yeah. Um, like it's, I don't really watch that much stand up. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you watch that much stand up. I do. You do watch that much yeah. stand up. Okay. Um, so yeah, my my point was going to be, I don't watch that much stand up, mm-hmm. so I don't even know if this is the best stand up special of the year. Mm-hmm. I think it had a lot more to do than most stand up specials do. Yeah. It's not just a case of, all right, you have to sort of teach us. I think most stand-up specials, they have to sort of teach you what comedy to expect. Mm-hmm. So you know when you're supposed to be laughing. And they have to show you that they're going to be funny. They have to put you in a yeah. state of, not necessarily comfort, but in a state where you like, all right, I know what to expect from this comedian. Yeah. And I know I know that the humor is deliberate. I know I, I, I can sort of trust this performer that he knows what he's doing or she knows yeah, what the she's key, doing. Yeah, the key thing with stand-up is faith in the in the performer. Yeah. If you don't think they're up to it, it's the worst experience. Oh, absolutely. Nothing worse than watching a bad stand-up. Yeah, I think, I think many people would have been to like an open mic night at like your local pub Yeah, and someone goes up to do stand-up and it's just dead silent Yeah, because there's no goodwill and there's no trust yes. that's established. And that's not necessarily the comedian's fault. Yeah. But it is something that good stand-up shows have to do. They have to sort of establish that trust yeah. very quickly. Do you know, weirdly, it's kind of... Um, not only is there no goodwill, there's bad will towards stand-ups. There's something about... Yeah, I felt that. Yeah, there's... Someone goes up and does an acoustic set that sounds terrible, and everybody claps and nobody says anything. There's yeah. a respect for it. Mm. But stand-ups, there's something about what you personally find funny that really lights a spark in people. Mm. When when you it's like music. If you like something, if you find something funny that I don't, yeah, that makes me angry. Like not me personally, <laughs> you know, but that it seems to make people like you think that's funny. Uh, you did seem pretty angry after I showed you um, smiling friends. Can't remember what that is. Oh, well, there you go. It's what, the, what is that? It's the um, it's that like ten minute cartoon pilot where Mike Stoklasa. Oh yeah, did like a voice in it. Yeah, that that was terrible. <laughs> you weren't uh, a fan of that. No, but yeah, like. A bit of that. If people love Mrs. Brown's Boys and Michael McIntyre, you do go, what is it? That you <laughs> yeah. like? So there's something about comedy, I think, that has a unique place for people in terms of their rage. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, the thing about Sincerely oh, Louis C.K., I th- well, I think because if someone's laughing at something and you're not, it's like they get something you don't. Maybe. It's like yeah. they're smarter than you are almost. I mean, you've got certain humour which is like politically motivated, yeah. so it's quite obvious where the tensions would come from. Yes, there's that. I, well, I think it's it's both. It's an inverted thing, isn't it? So I think if you like, you know, the thick of it and quote-unquote good comedy, yeah. 
uh, and someone's laughing at Mrs. Brown's boys. It's not kind of insecurity that's motivating that. Mm. It's snobbishness. Yeah, that's not funny. How you know? Yeah. How can you enjoy that? Whereas I think if it's the other way around, like my mother thinks the things I find funny, to- totally um, inexplicable. Right. Like Stuart Lee, the thick of it, everything like that. Mm. She will just look at Stony Face and go, "I actually don't know. <laughs> I'm angry at the fact you find this funny." Right. Okay. So I th- I think that comes from a like you're playing a joke on her. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's it. Like, what don't I get? What what aren't I in on? You? Yeah. So yeah, it's really interesting. But I think the thing that propels sincerely Louis C.K. to the top ten position mm. is its context, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. That's the thing about it. It's probably he probably handled the situation as well as he could have. Yeah, couldn't have done it better. It's it's exemplary in that regard. Yeah. Of like he he addresses it but he doesn't dwell on it yeah he doesn't come across as bitter yeah he doesn't come across as desperate mm-hmm. he's not attacking the people who did this to him mm-hmm. he's not uh, using it as an opportunity to soapbox mm-hmm. or anything like that this is a stand-up special yeah just a straight-up stand-up special with that is a segment that's yeah. a bit it's it's the the thing you see in the trailer for every Oscar film especially ones about slavery I don't want to just survive I want to live yeah. all this stand up special had to do was survive yeah uh, and it lived it lived, it lived. <laughs> exactly yeah. yeah it just had to be bearable frankly it had to be you had to be able to watch it and, and everything be okay yeah and it was better than that I mean we were coming from a position of um, goodwill anyway to be Louis fair CK. yes like, yeah, I we think, didn't have any problem with no yeah. I mean you know a lot of people would probably come to the special and go right he's been me too'd yes so why would I like find this yeah. fight but I mean we talked about it when we talked about it in the original segment mm-hmm. like this is pretty minor stuff yeah in terms of the meat like yeah he asked women if he could masturbate in front of them yeah and they gave their consent yeah. and he did it yeah this is not Harvey Weinstein shit yeah you know there's actually that's the thing because of all the stink around it and the fact that he's lost everything mm. um, you'd be fooled into thinking that he actually did something wrong yeah he didn't yeah as far as I that's know that's the thing it wasn't yeah. even it wasn't even a case of like oh we forgive you Louis C.K. it's like we're not quite sure what we're supposed to be forgiving you for yeah frankly it's yeah it's just he actually did nothing wrong yeah it's that Dave Chappelle thing about buyer's remorse they did they regretted it after the fact yeah and it was a kink that could embarrass him in, uh, publicly yes that's what it was yeah if it, if it had been I don't know I slept with him and then I regretted it. Yeah. It wouldn't have had as much power as it did. But it's the fact that it was a kink. Yeah. Um, like, yeah, it, it would be like more embarrassing for yeah. Louis C.K. than from the women that um, this yeah. happened to. And that's why they did it. It's like, we can we can destroy a man. We can destroy a very successful and powerful man because mm. we know his kink. Mm. Like, that. that's what it was. Um, but yeah, so we went into it. Well, I went into it hoping that he just just didn't fall flat on his face. Yeah. That he wouldn't spend too much time on it. Yeah. Uh, that the whole thing wouldn't be an apology. Mm. I think the closest he gets to it is if you if you ask someone to, uh, if you can wank in front of them and they say yes, still just don't do it. Yeah. <laughs> it's not worth it. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, yeah, no, I... Yeah, it's brilliant. It's yeah, absolutely. Really um, and it's funny as well. It it's is, a, yeah, it it's is funny. genuinely funny special with yeah. a lot of funny like it's I think it's Louis CK I don't think it has like 
I think if you're if you're going to reference like brilliant Louis C.K. Yeah. bits, you'll go to other specials first. Yes, but it's consistently funny, mm-hmm. and it's it it sort of shows his best habits, imagery, and that sort of thing. Yeah, like I said to you yeah. during the original review, I think it was. I think I said that it sort of reminds you how good a storyteller Louis C.K. Yeah. is, and how that like fuels his comedy. How the jokes become funnier because. The picture he's painted is so detailed. Yeah, yeah. Just things like that. It's like, yeah, this is Louis C.K. Um, at his best again. Well, I don't know. Maybe this is in the same camp as Noel Gallagher and the Smiths. And it, it's just a case of kind of accidental inference. But the, th- the best thing about it for me, I said this when we first talked about it, mm. is I felt like he found a way to tell his fans that he was okay. Yeah. Um, and that could just be me reading into it but I felt like that was in there and that is what I applaud the most mm. is that when he talked about being in love and everything that was it led to material yeah. but that was I think his way of going just so you know if you like me I'm actually okay yes uh, so yeah okay yeah my number eight is Devs okay it's a mini series from Alex Garland oh uh, okay yeah uh, Ex Machina that yep. bloke yeah yeah it's it's not a masterpiece okay <laughs> but what can I say about devs really well made really well performed Nick Offerman in a serious role mm. um, well, that, Z- that alone has got to be worth a lot that's got to be it? and long hair oh uh, all right. Zach Grenier any, any or, facial hair no I think he's clean shaven Jesus. oh no maybe he does have a beard oh okay I think they're going for a Jesus thing so oh, maybe right. he does have a beard um, I could be wrong though I can't it was a while ago okay but Zach Grenier or Grenier he's one of those guys that if you saw him on TV you go oh he's just one of those people that pops up in everything okay uh, not, not notable in any way whatsoever and he kind of plays the villain of the season mm. and he's great like he one of the highlight performances of the year I don't want to spoil anything about it it's basically about artificial intelligence well it's Alex Garland it's Alex Garland it's yeah. Alex Garland uh, film but as a miniseries okay watch it that's all I'll say about it okay it's, it's, alright yeah where does it rank in terms of um, Ex Machina Annihilation his backup it's not basically. as good as Ex Machina but I would put it above Annihilation okay alright okay alright what's your number 7 my number 7 is The Invisible Man okay is it on your list no <gasps> it's not why is it not on your list just didn't quite make it. I thought you liked The Invisible Man. I really liked The Invisible Man, yeah. Yes. It, it was on an, an early version of the list. Okay. But then we introduced new media. I see. Okay, it. so that knocked it down a yeah. little bit. Um, yeah, again, we talked about it on a previous episode. Yeah. And I believe we all liked it. We all liked it, yeah. And we still like it now. We still like it now. Yes. Yeah, r- r- go to review. Yeah. I guess. No, yeah, I think it's sort of... Um, Similar to Hill House, before I started watching it, I sort of had an idea of the of the Invisible Man before mm-hmm. I went in. It felt like it wasn't going to go above a certain level, mm-hmm. you know. You see that like a type of like, you know that when you see like a trailer for a film or you hear about a type of film. You yeah, think, like I know this its place. Yeah, yeah. It's only going to be so good. Yeah. Um, and it's I think the Invisible Man is sort of a lot better yeah. than the field in which it's operating. Hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. It's definitely. I think. I don't know. I, I think it's just a a, a great little, um, it's just a great little film. I can't imagine you. Yeah. Could, I can't imagine many people that you would put the Invisible Man in front of and they would go, oh, I don't like that. 
Yeah, it's it's and that's the thing. Great little film is is the right phrase, I think, because it's it's a very unassuming, humble little film. Yeah. It's not there are no frills to it, with the exception of like one kind of fight scene. Mm. It's not showy in that way. No. Yeah, it just kind of does its thing and ends. Yeah. You know? I would say at the moment it's probably features the best leading performance of the year. I don't know if you would agree with that. Oh, it's definitely up there. Yeah. yeah. Elizabeth Moss. Yeah. Um, yeah, she's perfectly cast in it. Yeah, yeah. She's it's great. And it's yeah. it's it's one of those brilliant kind of horror sci-fi films. Cause obviously all sci-fi and horror are, are about ideas, right? Mm. Or feelings. Um it, it it just it just does it right. Gaslighting, right? Which is yes. basically the thing. Yeah. It just does it right. It's not too on the nose mm. and it's not vaguely in there. You know what it's about. Oh, it's about gaslighting. Mm. Yeah, it's the right amount. Yeah. It's just the right amount. It's Lee Wanell, right? Yeah. Yeah. He's done previous films like Upgrade where you can tell that he's trying to he's not just he doesn't just want to do the film and that's that. Mm. He's trying to like oh, how can I make this film in a unique way? Yes. So obviously in Upgrade, um, there was that gimmick where the camera would sort of like rotate in yeah. with in tandem with the character. Yes. So the character was always kind of vertical in the frame. Mm-hmm. It was the environment that would be moving around yes. them. Um, and I feel like he's done that in previous things as well, where he's sort of like using the camera and sort of like mm-hmm. various film techniques to sort of create a unique visual language. Mm-hmm. I feel like this is the first time where he's done that and it feels completely appropriate. Yes. Like it 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 sort of weaves perfectly into the the film. Yeah. Like there are so many shots where there's like empty space in the frame. Yeah. And yeah. Like, yeah, and it's, it creates this sense that there's another presence there even if there isn't. It's old school visual filmmaking. Yeah. It's proper like you could study it in a in a class or Yeah, it's know, sort it's, of a brilliant yeah. like little technique that's easy to pick up on. Yeah. But like it's not easy to execute. Yeah, it, it, the whole thing, it just creates the sense that he could always be around. Yeah. You know, that, yeah. and that's quite a feat. Yes. Is Lee Winnell the guy that's in Saw? I'm not sure if he's in it. Okay. I really don't know, though. I, 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 have I, even fin- I don't even know if I've seen all of Saw. Okay, the first one, just the first one. Yeah. In the, in the room, in the bathroom. I really don't know. Okay, because I think the guy that wrote Saw is in it. Is he? Yeah, yeah. I think Lee Winnell is that guy. Oh, okay. I could be wrong though. Okay. Uh, yes, Invisible Man is great. Yes. Okay. My number seven is season four of Brockmire. Okay. The final season of Brockmire. Brockmire is quite an obscure little comedy series starring Hank Azaria as a, a baseball commentator mm. whose kind of career ends in disgrace. Yeah. Uh, and then has to kind of uh, find his way to the top again. And by the final season, he has. He's mm. c- he completely has rediscovered celebrity. When was uh, Hank Azaria... When was Apu retired from The Simpsons? This year, wasn't it? Oh, it was this year, was it? This year or last year. Oh, okay. I was going to say, this is probably me reading too much into mm. it, but is this supposed to be a bit of a parallel between, like, because obviously Hank Azaria voiced Apu. Mm. Um, that's sort of why the character was retired. But is this supposed to be a little bit of a meta thing going on? In what way? Like, oh, I, you know, I've been disgraced, as it were, because uh, of my oh, depiction right. of, like, a, an Indian character. Oh, yeah. No, Brock Meyer started a few years before all that. Okay, all right. So, um... This never, is, never mind, then. <laughs> never mind. Yeah, this, this is just the final season I'm talking about. Um, yeah. It sort of does what Parks and Rec did in its final season, which is it took the future 
and ran with it. Okay. Like, so r- rather than just setting it in the future, there are futuristic elements to it. You know, like the phones are different. And okay. Uh, th- I really like that about it. And the final season is about him re well discovering that he has a daughter, mm. a grown up daughter, and reconnecting with her. And the best thing about Brock Myers is the performance is brilliant, mm. right? The lead performance. And it's funny, which a lot of comedies aren't now, uh, <laughs> but it's actually funny. But the final season, it just, you unexpectedly, it unexpectedly warms your heart. Okay. Like, I did not expect that from Brock Myers because he's an alcoholic and they sort of, they deal with that seriously as the show goes on. He ends up in rehab and everything. Mm. And he thinks he's going to die and he's dying. And the very end of the show, he's kind of uh, rebuilt the bridges that he destroyed with the people he loves. And he's back with the woman he loves. And his daughter is there. And uh, the black kid who's like his assistant is there as well. And they're like, oh, we've got time. It's a flippant thing. And the camera just kind of zooms in on him as he starts tearing up and saying, yeah, we we got time. And it ends. Okay. And it's a really lovely ending. Mm. Um, and it partly is on my... Well, A, I think it's the best comedy season of the year. And B, I don't think anybody's seen it. Okay. I don't know anybody that's seen Brock Meyer, so I would recommend you seek it out. All right, yeah. Okay, what's your number six? Uh, My number six, is it number six? I haven't labeled these, (laughs) so I don't know if I'm in the right place. Yeah, I think I am. Uh, My number six is the Beastie Boys story. Okay. Not mine. Oh, right, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Suspicious. All of these films that you say you like and they're not. They both have been in my top ten. Okay. So, uh, yeah. Um, Again, discussed on the podcast. Go look at it. (laughs) Go listen listen to it. Go listen to it. Uh, it's a very, very unique um, mm. experience because the the it's it is the story of the Beastie Boys, yeah, as told by the Beastie Boys. And ju- if you were just given the premise, something that you would mentally put into the camp of the arcane definition of televisual, it's a PowerPoint presentation. Yeah, basically, they did they did um, they sort of did live events. Yeah, where. They they were in front of a crowd and they were like, "Hello, crowd! This is the story of the Beastie Boys." Um, yeah, so it's directed by Spike Jones, mm-hmm. who has a history with like music videos, right? Yes, yeah, he does a lot of Fatboy Slim, the Fatboy Slim video, the Fatboy Slim yeah. video. He did. Um, oh fuck! Don't tell me. <laughs> Not that. <laughs> That's me thinking. Um, oh, I know the name of the song. It's like an incredibly famous music video. It's seven second loop. And they keep zooming in on different elements. It's an REM song. Oh, Imitation of Life. Imitation of Life. Yeah. He did Imitation of Life. Did he do that? I think it was him. Oh, I didn't, I didn't know that. Apologies, okay. uh, Spike Jones, if you did. Yeah. And to the person yeah. who did Imitation of Life. I'm going to quickly check that. I just, we... I, I just didn't know if he did. He might well have done. Well, he's done... Um, he's known in the field of music videos. He's him known... and Fincher are known for uh, yes. also directing great music videos. Um, yeah, so it's it's them talking about their career, and there's a lot of things that could go wrong there. Like, it, for one thing, it could be seen as incredibly self indulgent. Mm-hmm. Um, for another thing, just the fact that there's no real that it is just kind of a PowerPoint and archive footage. Mm-hmm. Okay, so why is this a film? Yeah, what makes this interesting to watch? And and like all of the areas where it could fall down, mm-hmm. it doesn't. Yes. And I think it helps that the Beastie Boys themselves mm-hmm. are just very affable. 
Yeah, they're very likable. Yeah, yeah, they've they've dropped their what what has become very clear in well, it was probably clear at the time, but mm. they've dropped their shtick, shtick, yeah, their gimmick. They are just guys. Yeah, they grew up. Yeah, it's yeah. almost like you know, um, oh yeah, I'm gonna reflect on yeah, it's them reflecting on certain periods of their life and mm. like oh god, I was a moody teenager, I didn't know what I wanted yeah, yeah. and. But it's sort of like given that I had no, I think I say this in the review as well. Given that I had no connection to the Beastie Boys prior to this documentary, yeah, um, I was interested the whole step of the way. Yes. I was really interested in kind of seeing their journey and sort of hearing how that was, how they were affected by that. Yes, and the uh, the because um, there are three Beastie Boys and there are only two in this documentary because mm-hmm. one of them passed away. Yes, a couple of years ago to sort of hear about him mm-hmm. and I know there's going to be this certain level of deference from them because he's their fallen comrade yeah but hearing just how um, important he was to the band and how yeah I, the band seemed to like go in a certain direction reflective of what he wanted and what he was capable of the quiet hero is the impression I got of him yes he was the guy that was really behind he's the Jordan Fish if, if you will of the Beastie Boys yeah the guy that's really behind it you know Yes. But it but it kind of stays off to the side and does his thing. Yeah. Um yeah, no, I agree. And they the fact they kind of it's it's quite innovative and it's not just them telling it. Sometimes they reenact stories and do little like playlets mm. of things up on the stage. Um Yes. No. I he didn't do imitation of life, by the way. No, he didn't. No. Why did I think he did imitation of life? Probably well, just because it's a good video. What else has he done? Yeah, apologies to is it Gareth Jennings? Garth. Garth Jennings. Sorry, yes, Garth. Garth Jen- well, he's a film director as well, so that might be why. Okay. You- Sorry, Garth Jennings. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't give you the credit you deserved then. Garth Jennings did um, Son of Rambo and Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Right. Okay. And Sing, I think. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Spike Jones music video. Yeah. Well, we- he did praise you. Did he? Did he also do the one with Christopher Walken? Uh, probably. Right. Yeah. I feel like if you get him to do one you're going to bring him in to do more yes like given how good he is um you can cut this out <laughs> sabotage he did sabotage yes of course he did well that makes sense that why he directed yes. the film yeah weapon of choice sabotage wonder boy um <laughs> he did wonder boy did he? he did wonder boy yeah okay there's there's more like people will know i imagine i love uh, buddy holly by weezer that's yeah. a famous video he did that yeah my point stands that he's known in the world of music videos he is indeed and we found a connection now between the Beastie Boys yes but again very sorry to Garth Jennings yeah for for um, uh, not giving you the credit yeah anyway that is the Beastie Boys story that is my number six okay my number six which I assume I'm gonna have to wait is the Vast of Night you will have to wait okay yes <laughs> then we'll wait what's your number five my number five I love this it's like the top ten films of the <laughs> of the decade I, don't to, I just have to wait yeah yeah exactly but it's always you having to wait I know like my the, the stuff that I like my favourite stuff of the year is always like your ten yeah or your nine <laughs> yeah yeah um okay now my number five is sort of an interesting one because this year was the year that I discovered Kill Those A Day Mm-hmm. The events of Kill Those a Day, which again done an episode on. Mm-hmm. Um, it's basically a true crime story about this man who sort of moved to this like town in the middle of nowhere in America um, after welding in the military for a certain amount of time, and he was he, sort of in the in his retirement, he moved away to this yeah. town, started his own business, had several running runnings with the people of the town. Mm-hmm. Tensions started to form between him and the town members, and this culminated in him 
modifying this bulldozer and basically going on this destruction rampage. Yes. Destroying most of the town. It's one of my favourite true crime stories. Yes. I feel confident in saying that, even though I've only heard about it this year. Mm-hmm. It's just such a great story. I think we talked about, in the episode we talked about it, we sort of talked of its cinematic potential. Oh, yeah. And it's kind of bizarre how that hasn't, no one's done a film about it yet. Yeah. Because it's so rife. For, like, it is just sort of God's Lonely Man. Yeah. It's that kind of story. I suppose that it would just be that, right? The anxiety about making him likable. Maybe. Or relatable, I suppose. But that's sort of part of the... I, I suppose the appeal is sort of the ambiguity around... Mm. Some people see... Um, I've forgotten the man's name. <laughs> but again, that's part of the irony is because this, this happened... And it was being covered by local news, well, covered by international mm-hmm. news. And then I think Ronald Reagan died. So this story right. was just buried. It was buried. Did, he didn't kill anybody, did he? Except himself. No. And it's unclear whether that was the plan. Yeah. See, th- that's what makes it kind of, dare I say, fun almost. Yeah. Like his suicide accepted. Mm. If, if, if more people got hurt, it would feel weird to say we really like this kind of, you know. Yes, sort of, yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, I, yeah, there is something, well, yeah, it's just, it's just so idiosyncratic, isn't it? Like yeah. Like building this thing. And also it feels perfect because in the sense that you've got this film that, that would be incredibly like character focused yeah. and character driven, but you have this really cinematic mm. set piece finale. Yes, yeah. It's sort of like um, a less, well, a real life and less devastating we need to talk about Kevin it's all, <laughs> it's all building to this big thing yeah um, and you kind of yeah you chart his mental breakdown yes as, as, yeah yeah as, yeah it's, it's such a fascinating uh, story mm-hmm. because yeah because of the bizarre direction it seems to go in mm-hmm. like listening to the story unfolding you think right okay he's gonna kill a couple of people yeah or he's gonna you know he's going to commit suicide and blame the town or something mm-hmm. like that but no he like creates this like eighty ton tank yeah. and destroys most of the town. It's a non sequitur, isn't it? Yeah, it's brilliant. It's like this man driven to the edge. What did he do? Did he did he go on a gun rampage? Yeah. No. <laughs> he built a killer robot. Wait, what? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it is. It is amazing. It is. Um, it's kind of like the the commitment and the dedicate. Like he must have been. There's being angry and doing something a crime of passion. Yeah, right? and then there's such deep-rooted anger yeah. that it fuels the, the labour that that's, it would have taken. That's part yeah. of it as well. Like, there's something about a school shooter where it feels like, obviously, planning goes into yeah. it, but it feels almost spontaneous in a way. Yeah, it? little like, thought is required. Yeah, it's like, yeah. you could, like, when you're imagining that unfolding, it, it, you could just imagine someone pulling out a gun and just starting to shoot people. Yeah, yeah. Like, in, the, in that moment, they snapped. Yes. And before they could even think about it, the rampage had begun. Yeah, yeah. The amount of, like, preparation that this took. That's what it is. It's, you know, like, um, I think a comedian pointed out, it might have been Lee Evans, actually, who, uh, when you're angry uh, and you're on the phone, mm. you, you could always satisfyingly whack it back onto the wall or yeah. back onto the, yeah. Uh, but on a mobile phone, there's nowhere to, like, there's nothing to do. Yeah. This is the equivalent of a school shooter is somebody who just slams the phone down. Yeah. This guy stayed in a state where he, like, he flew out to the the, the pro- provider headquarters, <laughs> demanded that they like get rid of the contract, yeah. and then like disassembled the phone. All while it's going, like, <laughs> yeah. that's what this guy is. Yeah, yeah. 
So it felt... I Obviously, I can't um, nominate Killdozer Day itself no. because it happened in 2004. And there was a documentary film that came out this year called Tread, yeah. which is the review that we did in the previous episode. Mm-hmm. But I gave it a negative review, a review that I stand by. Mm-hmm. Um, so it felt wrong to sort of include that for the sake of the story mm-hmm. being included. So I've put down... Um, episode 9 of the Alternative Interest podcast Mm -hmm. because that's the episode that they did on Killdozer Day. Yes. And it's also the episode that's how I found out about Killdozer Day. So it felt appropriate. But you said as well it was better than the documentary. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's also a nice, like, in a way a little two-hander because it includes that podcast as well which I discovered this year. Well, that's the most obscure thing on any of our lists, I think. Probably. Like, that is truly just a... A little niche podcast yeah. that not many people are listening to. So if you think so far, listening to my list so far, it's like, oh, he's barely watched anything. <laughs> ha! <laughs> you got Fuck that. you. <laughs> okay. My number five. Number five? Is that what we're doing now? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. My number five is a podcast episode. Oh. It's an episode of... That wasn't deliberate, by the way. No, it wasn't. Our podcast episode It wasn't at five. all. Uh, an episode of The Portal, which is Eric Weinstein's podcast. Okay. Uh, it's him talking to Douglas Murray. Mm-hmm. The episode is called... Heroism 2020, defense of our, of our own civilization. Do you want to unpack that for a sec? <laughs> well, you just think, it's like, it's a four-hour episode. It's the longest he's done, I think. Okay. Um, and that's obviously very intimidating and daunting. Mm. And I say this knowing that that's how I spend my spare time as I listen to four-hour, five-hour debates. And so I know it's not for everybody. Yeah. And there's nothing I can pinpoint and say it was this particular thought that elevated to this position. Hmm. It was just a really rich, beautifully expressed conversation. Hmm. Yeah, that's all I can really say about it, to be honest. It, okay. it's, obviously, they're talking about uh, wokeness and those sorts of things, but it just goes really deep hmm. into poetry and stuff like that. And I'm a, I'm a big fan of The Portal, as is, but this particular... And, and Douglas Murray. Hmm. So this particular episode stood out to me, and I would recommend you can watch it uh, sorry, listen to it, knowing nothing around it about okay. it. So you can just dive into that. But yeah, you need to have four hours carved out. Yeah, because and listen to it in one. Oh, okay. It, it, yeah, you need the experience of just sitting down and like absorbing it because uh, it, the everything rolls into each other. Yeah, and it's a yes, and it's a conversation that benefits from being experienced in real time. Okay. I assume like the point of the podcast is they're trying to sort of excavate what they think is wrong Partly, effectively. Yeah. But um, is is that sort of like if you would say like this is the one thing that they're trying to achieve or this is the one thing to Yeah, that's the thing. It's it's kind of a multi-purpose podcast in that sense. Okay. It's sort of it just it, it's just a conversation. Yeah, I don't want to yeah. boil down. I don't want to be seen as like oh, I'm trying to boil down yeah, yeah. those 4 hours into But yeah, just like if I were to sort of if you were to um recommend it to someone as indeed you're doing now. Yes what is the sort of the the nugget of this is what to expect this is sort of okay. what it's what um, it is it's about bravery in the face of lies how about that okay it's sure. a, it's, a, it's about that's that was a potential way of saying it it's about um trump gender race identity that stuff all all the all the things all the things all the yeah. things so listen to that okay all right what is your number four? My number four is The Trial of the Chicago Seven. 
We can't talk about that yet. Oh, yay! <laughs> One instance where, where that's happened. Uh, my number four is another podcast episode. Oh. Uh, it's called Can We Pull Back From The Brink? Ah, uh, is this the one? Yeah, this is the one. This is the one. This is an episode of um, Sam Harris's podcast called Waking Up. And it did change my life in, in the way that The Social Dilemma did. And then it made me less angry. Okay. So this podcast, George Floyd was killed. Mm. And then there were two, three weeks of just insanity. Mm. Of arguments and, you know, friendships on the brink of ending. You know, right. like it was a turbulent time. Yes. Because I couldn't believe what I was hearing. And, you know, a lot of people I listen to, Weinstein, <laughs> Murray, they all were speaking about this. But the one person that was conspicuously silent was Sam Harris. Okay. And I was like, okay, is he just not going to touch this? It's the only thing in the world at the moment. Yeah. And then I think three weeks or a month when things had simmered down a little, mm. he released his solo episode on it. Okay. And it's the most, it's the best expressed, most balanced, most mature, most real account of all of that um, that I've heard. Okay. And it exercised the demon for me of that situation. I listened to it, I went, I can breathe now. I can relax. It's been said. The guy said it. Right, part of the thing is, right, when I was arguing with people about the George Floyd thing, the people that you have to kind of go listen to this person, Mm. they're usually obviously conservative and people instantly will go, oh, I'm not going to listen to him. He's a right-wing bigot or whatever. Mm. Um, so part of that was listening to something going ah I can I can recommend this to someone who totally doesn't agree with me and they would have to be you know uh, an ideologue not to sympathize with this point of view Mm. it is the most comprehensive most balanced he talks about the history of racism in America and how that might have lasting Mm. effects but he also gives the stats and the facts of the situation okay um it's absolutely peerless. Okay. I would recommend it highly. How long is it? Oh, not that long. It's... Oh, I will check for you now. Okay. Because you were saying about, like, oh, people wouldn't be able to write it off because it's not from a conservative viewpoint. Yeah, yeah. If it's too long, people might be inclined to write it off anyway. It's one hour, 53 minutes. Okay. I've, yeah, I don't know. Is That's that... consumable. Yeah. Uh, it depends, because my palate is... It's extended. Like, that's short for me. Yeah, well, I mean, it's rich coming from us anyway. Yeah. Given that we, we, we put out, like, yes, two exactly. to three-hour podcasts, so, you know. Yeah, one hour, 53 minutes of, like, not a word wasted, making total sense. Okay. And we are, like, two hour, 40. Uh, we already said. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anything but anything. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so that's my number four. Okay. What's your number three? My number three is The Haunting of Bly Manor. Oh, okay. My, o- my only TV show. Your only TV show. <laughs> to go on this list. Um, you know, the more I think about The Haunting of Bly Manor, again, this is something we talked about mm-hmm. extensively. Yes. Um, I was going to say not, not that long ago. It was that long ago. There just yeah. haven't been that many episodes yes. since then. Yeah. Um, the more I think about it, the more I think there isn't really that much wrong with it. Okay. Fundamentally. I feel like the biggest problem for the show, from what I remember, is just the fact that it had to follow up Hill House. 
Yeah. It, it will forever be in the shadow of The Haunting of Hill House, and that's sort of a shame. Yeah. I mean, it's it, it's something that the show itself does. It's a problem exacerbated by the show. Mm-hmm. It obviously uses a lot of the same music as Hill House. Mm-hmm. I feel like there are even moments where it's um, it's deliberately inviting comparison. Mm-hmm. They use the phrase forever house at one point, mm-hmm. and that's like anyone who's watched Hill House is yeah. going to go, oh, that's a Hill House thing. Yes. Um, but it's sort of, it's such a... Taken in isolation, it's such a well-put-together season of television. Yeah. It's a really... Um, it's just a really good story, mm-hmm. I think, told really well. Like, mm-hmm. you you said during the review that you really liked the way the show was utilising ghosts. Yes. Um, and they are used so well in this story. It's mm-hmm. nice... I know I've just said that the problem is that it's being compared to Hill House, mm-hmm. but I think I said in the review there's a nice sort of inversion mm-hmm. in Bly Manor. Like, in Hill House, the ghosts end up being sort of a good thing yeah and then in this in Bly Manor less so yes this the, the fact that ghosts exist in this house is sort of a tragedy yeah um and it's just I don't know it's really good well it's, it's kind of an inversion of the Louis C.K. thing as well the, the the thing that made that great was its context and the thing that makes this less than great to a lot of people is its context yes exactly um I think we even recommended in that episode um watch Bly Manor first watch it first yeah, that's the thing. I don't have any... Um, I, I refer you to our review of it. Yeah. But yeah, I've got no big problem with it. Other than the accents, I don't really have any big problem with yeah, it. Yeah, that's something t- maybe to get past. Yeah. Um, but, like, other than that... Because I, I, I think I had minor gripes as well mm. um, regarding sort of the context and the horror and mm. certain things like that. But, yeah, like, on a, on a, on a fundamental level what's wrong with it yeah it's just not as good yeah like that's it really which is a shame yeah because there really is nothing you can point at and go that's your problem yeah yeah no I agree yeah um I suppose another problem I had with it was it's big twist I saw very early mm. so that kind of lessened the impact of it for me yeah yeah other than that I don't really have any problems with it okay okay yeah my number three is the trial of the Chicago 7 there we go. There we go. I was just looking at it, thinking, wait, we haven't talked about that. But now I remember <laughs> yes. why. Uh, it was good. It was good. <laughs> I mean, uh, the rhythm, professionalism, and pace of any Aaron Sorkin project yeah. is always welcome. But it's even nicer when the project it is in service of is good. Yeah, and the, he directed it and pulled it off. Yeah. Yeah, it's pure Sorkin. Just... I keep wanting to rewatch it. It's one of those films. Mm. I just keep wanting to. I watched it yesterday. Oh right. Um, okay. No, not yesterday. The day before my birthday. Okay. Yeah. I just keep wanting to re-experience the film. Mm. There's just something delightful about it. Yeah. Um, it is that Sorkin thing of like, yeah, it's it's the thing he does best, right? Is behind the scenes of very professional environments. That's his thing. Yes. Um, and this is behind the scenes of a trial and the trial itself. Yeah. But it's just so entertaining, isn't it? It is just listening to really good music. That's what watching an Aaron Sorkin yeah. project is. And it's one of those things where, like, you know, Aaron Sorkin films, um, they, they, there are probably very good quotes in there. Yeah. You would take time to, like, pause and listen to the dialogue and isolate certain things. Yeah. You could probably extract some very, like, good quotes that sort of demonstrate the skill of the yeah, writing. Yeah. But you don't, th- like, you don't think of that. No, you, you you recognize it as brilliant writing, and and it sort of like charges through you. Yeah, those scripts charge through you. But whereas I think like a criticism that I leveled at Doctor Who 
when we were talking about it is that the like the show will occasionally attempt humor mm. particularly during the Stephen Moffat era and it sort of goes by so quickly that you register it as humor and you sort of react like oh that was humor but yeah. you haven't really had time to think about it yeah and then you go back to it and pay attention to it and you go oh actually that wasn't yeah that wasn't very good doesn't happen with Sorkin no like it, it rushes past you and you recognize it as quality yeah and then you go back and you comb through it and you go oh no this is still quality yeah Sorkin's only problem is uh when he grandstands that's the only time Aaron Sorkin starts to fall flat a little yes. bit uh like the newsroom is just not very good in my opinion for that reason okay um the West Wing rather is okay good um when he was doing it. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah, I don't know. It's just, um, he just brought it to life in such a brilliant way. Again, I knew nothing really about this trial. Mm. I'd heard of the trial of the Chicago 7, mm. but I knew nothing about it. Okay. And, again, for a film that's about old school hippie lefties, it had such potential to be irritating. Yeah. And it's not. No. It's just, you know, the, the some of the criticism of it uh, has been irritating mm. when people like positive criticism people saying oh it's like now I no like, I get it Try people trying to draw parallel, parallels but for me it is about a unique thing yeah. in history um, obviously it has things that bleed over but I mean the performances it's an ensemble that's just outstanding yeah. everyone's great in it pretty much Eddie Redmayne Eddie Redmayne is your favourite thing about it exactly and I do not like Eddie Redmayne exactly yeah uh, yeah Cohen Rylance uh, what's the guy who plays the judge what's his fucking name I, you, you're on your own on this Langella Frank Langella okay uh, Yaya Abdelmateen they're all it's just the whole cast mm. it's the ensemble of the year I think it's a very very solid cast yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know what to say about it really it's <laughs> yeah it's just it's better every time you watch it as well mm. Have you rewatched it at all since you first saw it? Not in its entirety. There no. are certain scenes that I've gone back to. And yeah. Gone, yes. But that's the thing, like you said, there in Aaron Sorkin scripts, there are very few zingers. There are very few quotable mm. lines in that way. Like you might get in a Tarantino film. It's about the whole thing working together. It's the orchestra rather than the instruments, yes. isn't it? Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, my number three. Okay. Trial of Chicago 7. What's your number two? Number two? Yeah. Number two. Yeah. Almost three hours in, that's what happens. <laughs> well, yeah, we've been going nearly yeah. three hours. Yeah. Uh, my number two is The Vast of Night. Okay. It's a good film. It is a good film. <laughs> it's a very good film. Yeah. I I still remember it. Yeah, me too. I but, haven't yeah. seen it since we watched it. Yeah. But I still remember it very clearly. All of it, pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. I think that alone is a testament to the quality of the film. Absolutely. Yeah, it's something I keep meaning to go back to. Yeah. Yeah, no, I... Totally agree. Yeah. I mean, it's... it's is it Was it a debut film? I think so, yeah. Yeah, I think it was the debut yeah. film for this director. And obviously they would have made films in, to a certain capacity yeah, before. Yeah. Short films or whatever. Yeah. But yeah, it's a debut film. Yeah. Like, fair fucking play. It's so confident, isn't it? Yeah. But again, quietly confident. It's breaking yes. bad confidence. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's sort of... It's small. Yeah. But it uses its size to its advantage. Yes. It's, it's, it's such a small... It's about how you use it. Yeah, exactly. Yes. It's such yes. a small, isolated story. And they, they look to that and go, right, we can't have something of great scope. Yeah. So let's set the film almost in real time. Yeah. Let's set it in this tiny location. But let's sort of um, 
film the location in a way that makes it feel grander than it is. Yeah. Like the like I'm I'm thinking specifically of that uh whatever it was, like Dolly shot across the entire town. Yeah. Like that's objectively a tiny location. Mm-hmm. But seeing you like traveling through that in real time, mm. it creates this sense of grandeur where there yeah. isn't really any in, an interesting kind of paradox in a way because it creates a sense of grandeur by I would say that the intent of that was to show how small the town is. Yeah, absolutely. Like yeah. that you can just get from A to B in 20 seconds. You yeah. know, like... Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, and it was at the time where in conjunction with Talking Heads, I was becoming really fascinated with filmed monologues. Mm. And this film, well, has one... With, with they're on screen, right? And then one kind of off-screen monologue. Yes. The fact an off-screen monologue can be so enthralling. Yeah, that <laughs> that's a display of confidence as well, yeah. isn't it? That you have, an, you have an entire sequence of the film, which is mostly just audio. Yeah, yeah. There aren't even any accompanying visuals. And then there's the sequence where the girl is operating all the switches. Which, and, yeah. again, like that's a contender for scene of the year, I yeah. think. Yeah, yeah. Just because it's it's 10 minutes of someone answering phone calls. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it's just, it's enthralling. Yeah. You know, and it's so well put together. It, the, you know, you never see the seams of it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's such a well, it's such a well put together film. It's just brilliant, yeah. I, I assume it's not going to be released on DVD. I'd, I'd be disappointed. Yeah. I'd be very disappointed. It's an Amazon film, isn't it? Yeah. So I would be surprised, but hopefully. Yeah. Yeah. I want to own it. <laughs> Amazon. All right. Yes. Well, we we reviewed that, so you can seek our yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, it's 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 absolutely stuck with me. Yes, my number two is the eighth and final season of Homeland. Okay, I don't want to say too much about it because we <laughs> we are currently watching it. Oh yeah, um, yeah. We'll put you in a. Well, you did this. You made yeah. me start watching Homeland. So it's your fault. You can't talk about it now. <laughs> um, okay, what can I say? So Homeland. Similarly to Louis C.K. and um, Haunting of Bly Manor, it works partly because of its context. Mm. So the first season of Homeland is brilliant. Mm. The second season is good. Third season is not very good. No. The fourth season is brilliant. Yeah. The fifth season is brilliant. And then the sixth and seventh are fine. Okay. So when season eight was brilliant... That was a big plus. Now, I mean, it's it's the eighth season of a show, so like, I don't know how much context I can really give it. But yeah, after season three, the show started kind of doing self-contained stories for each season. Mm. And this is a self-contained story, but it's also functionally a sequel to season four, which we've just finished watching. Mm. It basically revolves around um, Afghanistan and American troops are going to leave after making a deal with the Taliban. And there are people on both sides that want to undermine the harmony that is coming. And I can't even tell you what the the big... Because every season of Homeland, again, after the third, was there would be some sort of atrocity, I suppose, or crime. Mm. So in season four, it's uh, the head of the CIA station in Pakistan being killed. Okay. In season five, it's that the CIA is hacked into and all the documents are made. There's a th- and a big inciting incident. I can't even tell you what that is for season eight because it happens four episodes in. Okay. Uh, someone is killed. Let's mm-hmm. just say that. And the brilliance of the show is like a good nerd mystery. There are so many people it could feasibly be. And it's great. It's like this little... Um, 
yeah, just this little who done it basically, but on a grand international scale. Okay. Um, that's all I can say about it, really. Okay. It, it's right. brilliantly done. Again, the ensemble is fantastic. Mandy Patinkin um, and Claire Danes like really bringing it in for the end. Mm. Um, there's a character in it who in is essentially the primary antagonist of season four. Okay. Who, when I first saw it, and we recently rewatched it, mm. I hated him. He's the head of the Taliban, basically. Mm. Taliban commander. And he's just this revile character. Mm. Um, who is recast in a sympathetic light in the final season and it was done well and I, like that surprised me that it could do that okay um, like a lot of Homeland seasons it's basically about how how America loses right. <laughs> in, in various different ways always good when that happens always good when that happens um, Homeland starts as a show about a marine who is returned mm. uh, uh, who was captured by the Taliban uh, by Al-Qaeda and then returns home to America and it's about whether he's been turned or not. Yeah. And the show does that to Carrie in the final season. Oh, okay. Um, even you are in doubt over whether she's been turned or not. Interesting. Uh, and when it ends, so unlike Breaking Bad or Dexter, shows that have a, you know, sort of how it will end. Either mm. they will be, they will die or they'll get arrested, something yeah. like that. Homeland was never a show like that where it had the ending. Well, I suppose if you were watching it from the beginning, the show ends with you finding out if he's been dead. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then when it reinvented itself, it's like, well, anything. Yeah. Like there is no unifying ending to all of this, Mm. but it did that. Right. And it's like, of course, of course, that's how it has to end. Okay. So yeah, just absolutely fantastic. Best drama of the year. And I'm just um, upset the more people... A, aren't watching it in general, but B, will have been turned off by... Like, you never would have watched it. Right? No, I was done after Series 3. Yeah. But are you glad that we've... Yeah, re- definitely. Yeah. It's... it's. I don't know if I... I sort of respect what the show has done. Yeah. Where it sort of went, right, we're done with Brody. Yeah. And rather than doing... um, Trying to sort of recapture mm. that storyline in spirit. Yeah. Let's just go off in a completely different direction. Yeah. I do admire that, but it does... It does create that sort of problem of like, well, people aren't going to come back to it because it's still Homeland. Yes. Why not just make a spiritual successor? Yeah. Rather than continue. Because it's untidy as well, isn't it? In what way? You've got the first three seasons of Homeland, which are basically their own show. I know what you mean. Like, yeah. Yeah. From, yeah, I know from like an OCD kind of point of view. Mm. Yeah, I, I know what you mean. Mm. I know what you mean. Um, thing is, Homeland is never bad. It's never bad television. Okay. The third season is its worst, and there are some things that are kind of ridiculous. Mm. But it was still better than most other television. Mm. Um, but I know what you mean the kind of yes, the the uh, germophobic yeah. thing we have about things like that. Yes, we like things to be nice and clean. Yeah, yeah, no, but ju- just as an experience, um, you know, I can forgive it. Yeah, given the and if that was a necessary move to get it to the point where they could do series four and five right. and eight, then fair yeah. enough. Yeah, you know. All right, that's Homeland. Okay, what's your number one? My number one is Doom Eternal. This <laughs> okay. is my my first and only video game. Okay. Well, I said during the caveat at the beginning that there are many games that I I might have made it onto this list, but I haven't played them yet because mm. I have a strict not a strict but like a. You know, I generally wait to see how mm-hmm. games gestate. Yes. Um, before I go. Not Doom Eternal. I picked that up pretty much straight away. Mm-hmm. In fairness, we were all going into lockdown. 
Yes. So it's like, all right, I need something to do. But also, like, I really liked Doom 2016, and there was just nothing about this game that was turning me off. Mm-hmm. So I was like, I'm just going to dive in. I'm mm-hmm. going to buy it straight away. Mm-hmm. And I was not disappointed. Yes. It's such a... Talking about confidence, this game is one that just oozes mm. confidence. And not like... It feels well-earned. It doesn't feel like it's being... Um, you know, like you've seen, like you see people displaying in it this this sort of confidence, and go, and you go, that's you don't. Why are you acting like that? Right. You don't. You shouldn't be confident. Yes. You just look like a tit. Yes. It's not like that as well. I mean, Doom. It's 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 very abrasive in general, mm-hmm. and I think that's sort of one of the things that's successful about it is, is it's so like in your face mm-hmm. that you just kind of end up going, yeah, you know what, I'll, I'll roll with it. Yeah, I'll roll with yeah. it. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's sort of difficult to talk about because it's a game, so there's yeah. like other things you can go into rather than just the experience of, oh, the experience I had while watching it or what it does from a narrative yes. perspective. There's, like, mechanical things you can talk about. Yeah. Um, and that's definitely where Doom shines. It's definitely at its strongest on a gameplay front. Mm-hmm. I, I'm trying to think of how to sort of explain... Have you ever seen, like, a genre film or just, like, a film in general where you watch it and you feel... You have this sense of like it feels like we've been building to this. Okay. Like you see a really, really good action movie, mm-hmm. like Mad Max Fury Road, for example. Yeah. Where it feels like action movies have been building up to this for a while. It, it has a kind of inevitability about yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. I think Doom Eternal definitely has that. Just mm-hmm. in terms of first person shooters, it feels like yeah, this is sort of this feels like we've been building to this for a while. Mm-hmm. It's such an exemplary shooter in its genre. Yeah. And it's not perfect by any stretch of the imagination there are things that it does that the original didn't do Mm -hmm. which are it's worse for it okay um but when i say it's confident it feels confident in all regards it's confident where it should be and it's confident where it isn't okay but in a way that kind of like helps it's endearing yeah it kind of helps tie it together just the fact that you're these things aren't helping the game or these are to the game's detriment but the fact that you're just like no here they are so so totalizingly unapologetic yeah 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 it's like fine you don't need to apologize yeah yeah um yeah it's just really fucking good (laughs) i just really like it have we talked about this on an earlier episode i feel like we did i feel like a lot of it was cut okay because you have a nasty habit of just not responding to me when we talk about video games (laughs) you just kind of go yeah and well, it's it. of little to offer, really, with most video games, yeah? Uh, yeah, I suppose. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I, there's, I think, though there are things that it does um, that the previous one didn't do, mm-hmm. for example, I think there's, a, there's, a, there's even though there's more of a story to this one, it has a weaker sense of world building. Mm-hmm. Like the original Doom, well, I say the original, Doom 2016, the remake, mm-hmm. uh, it was sort of set on in one massive location. Mm-hmm. So it, it it had plenty of time to sort of firmly establish the world you were tearing through. Right. Whereas with this, it's sort of like um, each level is its own kind of location that you visit randomly. Okay. Um, so there's a better sense, there's a worse sense of world and there's, there's more of a story than there should be, I think, for okay. a Doom game. But despite that, I think it does more things better. I get you. Yeah. Okay. So, like the music, for example, Doom has such a like a distinct soundtrack. Mm-hmm. I think back to the 2016 soundtrack, and I do really like it. But it feels like there's only like one or two identifiable songs. Okay. Most of Doom's soundtrack is kind of by design. It's sort of like noise, basically. Yeah. 
Um, Crunchy that, and clangy. Yeah, and exactly. Ah. It's, yeah. Sort of, it's sort of tonal more than it is melodic. Yes. Um, but there are more... It still manages to keep that sort of, like, air of... It's just noise. Yes. But there are more distinct songs and motifs in okay. the soundtrack to the second one. Yeah. Things like that, where it's, like, it's taken certain things forward and it's just improved them in, yeah. in general. It's a very good video game. I recommend it to... It's very... Um, as I say, it's very abrasive. It's mm-hmm. very quick. Yeah. It's a game that I would want to recommend to people, but I feel like it's probably a bit too... It's probably a bit much. Yes. If you're not into games or if you haven't played many games before, just because it's so fast. Okay. And it demands so much of you. Right, okay. That I think it will... Um, it's not um, impenetrable, well, but, it, like, but it, it requires you to have a certain level of... Um, Competency, I think, before you okay. go into it. Well, that's interesting because I was—is that counterbalanced by its simplicity? It's not dense in that way, right? It's—it's it's Scott Pilgrim. It's not The Wire. <laughs> you, you know what I mean? It's like it's full on. It's oh Jesus, okay, yeah. But it's simple. It's straightforward. You're just killing things, basically. It is simple. Yeah. It does sort of layer its mechanics a little bit. Yeah. So I think I—I I don't know if this is something that made it into an episode. Um. There's almost this level of resource management within the combat. Right. So, like, if you kill an enemy a certain way, mm. you'll get ammo. If you kill them a different way, you'll get um, uh, armor. Okay. You'll get health if you kill them a different way. Mm-hmm. And your resources, by design, they run out pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. So it's not just a matter of, like, right, I'm going to go into this arena and I'm just going to kill everything. Mm-hmm. If you just do that, you'll be defenseless pretty quickly. Okay. So, yeah, it's it, you have to kind of... Even though it's got this sort of mindlessness to it, you still have to be mindful of certain elements. Okay, how how competent do you have to be to play it? As in, um, so I grew up playing video games. So yeah. I remember playing Gears of War, I think. Okay. So my uncle was a, was a PC gamer. Mm. He was like the first generation of PC gamers. <laughs> right. And um, my cousin was a console gamer. Mm. He like still is a big console gamer. And he just bought Gears of War. My uncle tried it and just couldn't... It wasn't intuitive to him because he was used to PC. Yeah. He's like, oh, I don't... How do you... And I just instantly knew the controls because I'd grown up playing console games. Yeah. You know that's the camera. You know that's the... Mo- you know, that sort of thing. Yes. Um, and my cousin said, yeah, well, Sam grew up with it. Like, that he's, it's like in his system sort of thing. Yeah. So I am not a gamer by any stretch. And I don't know, if you threw me onto, like... COD multiplayer, I would not do well at all. Right. But I'm a competent gamer... In that, you know, I sort of know what I'm doing. Yeah, you're not going to be um, lost by no the, the, the type of people who don't know how to turn a camera. Yeah, so yes. run into walls. You're not that. No. So would I be competent enough to play? I think doing? probably. Yeah. Okay. It's, it's not okay. like Dark Souls where if, yeah, that's you need to be like brilliant. Like yeah, utterly, you yeah. need to know how video games work if yeah. you're going to try and penetrate Dark Souls. Yes. Um, it's not that, but it's. Like, if you're unfamiliar with first-person shooters, mm-hmm. I don't really think you stand a chance. Okay. Um, but it's... it's Yeah, it's the pace and intensity that you need to adjust to. Yeah. So, I, I'm yeah, when I say that you need a baseline, you don't need to be brilliant. Mm-hmm. You just need to have enough of a... I feel like we're reaching a point now where people generally have, a, like, a, a baseline understanding of video games. Yeah. Um, just because enough people play them mm-hmm. and they've become universal enough. Yeah. Like, you know... The first-person shooter, you turn the camera with the right stick, mm-hmm. you, things like that people yes. understand. But yeah, I, I wouldn't recommend it as like one of the first games that people play. No. Okay, yeah, fair enough. Is it like uh, 
is it like Scott Pilgrim as well in the sense that it if you're over a certain age you're probably not going to like it maybe you've got to be young and quick for it not to overwhelm you oh yeah definitely in that respect yeah, yeah. okay alright yeah is that it that's it that's, okay. that's my list such as it is <laughs> well this is kind of an anti-climax really oh well given that I go by the 2020 release schedule Oh, right. My number, my number one is obviously Parasite. Oh, of course it is. <laughs> yeah. Which so it was your favourite film of the 2010s. Yep. And it's your favourite film of 2020. Yep. Okay. Um, right. What can I say that hasn't been said? Mm. I mean, we've talked about it. We've reviewed it at least twice. Yes. We've talked about it a lot. Yeah. It's often a point of comparison now. What can I say about Parasite? So, whereas you feel like Doom was inevitable, mm. Parasite was astoundingly evitable okay it was no one knew it was coming mm. we had no right to expect it yeah it was just a gift wasn't it the mm. parasite there was no build up to it there was no it was just there all of a sudden yeah and it was a masterpiece yes and it is a masterpiece it's something oh, yeah. I say without qualification yeah yeah parasite is a masterpiece it is one of the great greatest films ever made mm. um it's one of my favourite films of all time obviously I think when we did our top 10 movie films of the 10s, mm-hmm. it was maybe like sixth for me or something like that. Yeah. It's now second. Okay. It's it's all I can think about really when it comes to cinema. It I just think goes we were, up and up we, and up. We were being cautious, weren't we? we because were. we were fresh off the heels of seeing Parasite. Yes. Um, but I think even at the time we were expecting it was going to go up. Yeah. And it, it has. It clearly has. Yeah. yeah. Number two, hands down. Like, The Social Network is still my number one. I'm not saying The Social Network is a better film than Parasite, mm. but The Social Network just has, like, a special place in my heart. Yeah. Whereas Parasite doesn't quite have that. That's kind of nice, though. They sort of bookend yeah. the decade, don't they? Yeah, that's yeah, that's nice, actually. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's nothing new I can say about it, so mm. I'll just shut up and just say, for God's sake, watch Parasite. <laughs> yeah. That's it's the it. best film of 2019 and 2020, don't you know? Indeed. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's it then, isn't it? It is. That is it. Oh, something we should tell the audience, George, probably. What's that? Uh, we are going to take a two-month sabbatical. Oh, yeah, we should probably tell them that, shouldn't yes. we? Yeah, <laughs> we're not going to be... Yeah. Obviously, it's been uh, fairly inconsistent, our yep. upload schedule, over the past couple of months. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're just doing it just to sort of, like, refine our footing mm-hmm. a little bit. Yeah. Get ourselves back on a good schedule. Um sort our lives out in general yes. so that a good schedule could be had yes and also um, wait for things to happen yeah I mean uh, you're probably not going to miss us but uh, <laughs> yeah we'll be back late February yeah is the idea that's yeah. the best plan um, so hopefully I mean that will be leading up to Oscar season so hopefully we'll be have a lot of films to yeah discuss hopefully and hopefully it won't be too many no because <laughs> last year was a fucking nightmare. Yeah, it took us like yeah. three episodes to catch up to everything. All right. Fare thee well. Bye. Bye.